Hello, and welcome to a very special Not A Cast podcast. The podcast that usually goes through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week, but not here. Oh, no, sirs and ladies, not here. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And this week we are taking off for Thanksgiving break from the regular podcast. Join us next week as we unpack A Clash of Kings Theon 5 with our new guest, Alicia. But this week, we figured we'd give you all a little post-Thanksgiving snack, namely our Patreon episode we did back in June of this year, 2020, The Second Coming Part 2, which was the second of the five-part episode we did on our analysis of the Winds of Winter chapter, The Forsaken. Yeah, it was so much fun doing that back in the day. We figured we would share in the joy. So all of our patrons listened to this back in June. This is coming out to all of you as our general listening public. And we appreciate all of your ears listening to us all the same. So if you do like what you hear here, consider subscribing to us on Patreon to get the last three parts of The Forsaken, where we go deeper into the chapter and wrap up with a full-out theory section about what's going to happen with Aaron Damper, Euron Greyjoy, and Old Town in the Winds of Winter. Yes, indeed. Take care. Hello, and welcome to a very special Not A Cast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song by some fire one chapter week. No, yes, we're for a treat. Not here. I'm your host, Jeff, better known as Brenda B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 29th Patreon-only episode titled The Second Coming Part 2, analysis of the Forsaken in which we finally dive into the deep, dark void of the chapter itself. Eh, half of it, anyways. Exactly. We're going to deal with the second half next month, folks. You'll have to stand on the, the tip of your tiptoes on the edge of your seat waiting for the second half of this chapter. If you haven't listened to it, go ahead and check out our first uh, episode on our four-part episode on The Forsaken, that dealing with just the build-up to this chapter, dealing with the Feast for Crows and the establishment of Euron's character. And this here second part, we're going to be dealing with the first half of the chapter itself, The Forsaken, Aaron Dampere's release chapter from The Winds of Winter. And then in our third part, we're going to be dealing with the second half of the chapter. And then our fourth part, talking about all the immense foreshadowing and groundwork and setup for The Winds of Winter kind of springing out of that chapter. So we really enjoyed doing the first of this four-part series on The Forsaken. We hope you enjoyed it, too. And we were a little more eager for this second part here. It's, uh, if you guys like the first part... And if you liked our Great Joy Rebellion episode, which we both have talked about beforehand that we felt was one of our stronger Patreon-only episodes, yeah, I think this one's going to kind of blow that episode out of the water. Please go listen to it. <laughs> I think that this this analysis and this episode itself is just going to take some of that, uh, our earlier work, and just elevate it to a new level. And uh, it's all made possible thanks to your very kind support and contributions to us. So thank you very, very much. We really, really appreciate it. I agree with Jeff. Thank you so much. So since you subscribe to our Patreon, you'll be getting at least one of these episodes a month if you subscribe for only $5 a month or more. And our intent in doing these special Patreon episodes is to broaden out from our usual chapter-by-chapter focus and talk about some of the topics that interest us more broadly. So here you will hear character deep dives, backstory analysis, theory discussions, or in this case, 
a four-part exploration of one single chapter. Yes, indeed. And our spoiler warning, as we said in all episodes, to include our patron and regular episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five devils, three ducking devils, histories, interviews, Game of Thrones, the TV show, and especially the Winds of Winter sample chapters. We are going deep into the Winds of Winter for this episode <laughs> itself. So if you guys are trying to stay spoiler-free on Winds, we really appreciate your support and your patronage. And we'll see you guys in yeah, about three months when we actually like pick up to do something non, non-Winds of Winter related. So anything and... So we wanted to start out by me kind of putting you on the cross, effectively for a very religiously themed chapter. You know, when this cha- this chapter has not been officially released, there is no written form of The Winds of Winter of the Forsaken. Mm-hmm. The only form it exists is uh, a couple of transcripts, one of which, the most popular of which I happen to write. <laughs> But I was not present for hearing it. I was not there at Balticon 2016 when George R. R. Martin read this chapter out loud. And, you know, there were a few people <laughs> prominent in the fandom who happened to be there and got to experience this glory, this joy themselves. It's not that I hold it against them necessarily. <laughs> but to start out this episode, I thought it would be appropriate since we're getting to the chapter itself. Jeff, tell us about being present when this chapter was read aloud. A sin for which I will never forgive you. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, I do remember back in 2016, I, I think I might have like DM'd you or like tweeted you or something like that because you were just getting on Twitter. And I said like, That's hey, exactly are you right. going to come to Balticon? You know, I hear that George might be reading a new Winds of Winter sample chapter and you're like, oh, I wish I could, but I have work and stuff like that. So I'm like, oh, OK, don't worry about it, buddy. I'll uh, I'm sure it'll be like something like not memorable it'll probably be the uh something from fire and blood or the world of ice and fire or probably like the mercy sample chapter from the winds of winter and uh, something we've heard before you won't miss a thing exactly it'll be like a bit it'll only be worth like making the trip down to baltimore so as you guys know i am from baltimore maryland i live just outside the city itself so this was a perfect opportunity for me to actually go to a convention which george r martin was uh going to be featured at. So this is in a May 2016. There was a couple of us from the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit who all kind of went down there. A bunch of folks got hotel rooms or did rentals of houses and stuff like that. I just kind of commuted back and forth. So um, to set the scene properly, I, I feel like I should admit up front that the night before I got completely fucking wasted with like Lady Gwen of Radio Westeros and Yolk Boy <laughs> and a bunch of folks from the Song of Ice and Fire Facebook page. And this is good context for the straight edge persona Jeff is going to be affecting for the rest of the right, episode. Exactly. Folks. Let's just keep this in mind. Carry on. You're just going to. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Eliana was there. There's a bunch of folks there. John, uh, Matt was not there, but uh, Hamfast42 is John and a bunch of other folks. And mm-hmm. So just completely just wasted going from the bar to a house party and then like waking <laughs> up the next morning thinking that I was going to go get in line to get a, a book signed by George. I was going to get my copy of A Dance with Dragons signed by George and just being real fucking hungover so lying there in bed and being like no i can't do that and then lying there in bed as well and being like man i don't even know if i really want to go to the george reading today <laughs> it's, uh, i'm really it's, it's, it was it was a bad morning but i dragged my ass out of bed i i drove down to to baltimore city down to the convention uh center where the uh where george was hosting this this reading and i i went there with a couple friends uh lotta who you might have met once or twice at Ice and Fire Con. Uh, as much as I hate her online, she's actually a lovely person, a really good friend of mine. <laughs> so she was there. My friend uh, Stevie was there. Laura Khan was there as well. So all these folks that were just like very good friends of mine there were there. And uh, 
Aziz was there too, um, which was really cool. Aziz and Shea were sitting right in front of me or right behind me. I can't remember. So we sat down and George is just sitting up there. Uh, we were like one of the first people in line because that was fun, I guess. And uh, so we were like, on, I was in the second or third row. Uh, that's how close I was to the stage when George was reading. He's just kind of sitting there and I'm um, sitting next to my friend uh, Jasmine, who you might know from from Twitter as well. And uh, George is, <laughs> if, if I'm going along, just let me know. Uh, George is sitting there and he's he's looking at me i think and he like <laughs> looks right at me and he like waves and like smiles and i'm like oh shit george r, r. martin is like waving and smiling at me so i like kind of wave and smile and my friend jasmine says uh jeff he, he doesn't know who the fuck you are uh he's actually because uh, him and uh jasmine are have known each other and, and gone to dinner and stuff like that and done a couple stuff together so. oh i never knew that part of the story that, that is that yeah. that is a beautiful part of the story yes. right there sir yes jasmine was <laughs> the one he was actually waving and smiling at and she's She's lovely and, uh, you know, absolutely all she sorts is. Of stuff. So to kind of get into the meat of, of what happened for for the chapter itself, uh, George comes out, uh, the presenter comes out and says, oh, George, are you going to read us something? He's like, yes, I brought a, a couple things. I'll let the audience decide what's what do you what do you, what you want to hear, hear me read. So I've got a uh, I've got Sons of the Dragon. <laughs> I've got the Mercy chapter from the Winds of Winter. And uh, I've got uh, this chapter called the called the Forsaken from the Winds. Where I don't think I've ever read that one before. Is that, is that so? I'm going to do it by cheer. So who wants to hear the Sons of the Sons of the Dragon? And you kind of like look around. And you're like, yay! You hear about five people say that. And then how about Mercy? And he's like, you're yay! And like six or seven people. And then it's like, how about the Forsaken? And the entire like room just erupts in yeah, cheers. Uh, uh, and uh. So George says yes. Uh, so he reads the Forsaken. So. And I'm, meanwhile, I'm on my phone just tweeting this out to, to, the, to the general public. And so um, so the reading itself was just uh, phenomenal. I don't know if you guys ever have the chance to, to read or to have George read a, ch- a chapter before. Uh, you can go on on several. He's read like a Victorian chapter from the Winds of Winter. And he's read several other chapters as well. If you go back in Ariane chapter from the Winds of Ariane 2, I believe. Uh, but he's really, really a, a good reader of his own material, which I guess makes sense. But he really made it very evocative and very emotional. And it was something I was saying to Emmett right before we did the episodes at the very end of the chapter where Folly of Flowers and Damp Hair are tied to the to the prow of the silence. And, and Damp Hair says, you know, take heart, you know, because soon we will be feasting in the, in the watery halls of, of the drowned god. And then he realizes that Folly of Flowers' tongue has been cut out. Like, there was... Uh, not myself being a big strong man, but there were several people that had <laughs> tears running down their cheeks and were very, very feeling very emotional at the end of this. And at the end of it, the entire room erupts in a, in a big cheer and everyone's thinking that the Winds of Winter is right around the corner and this is a great <laughs> chapter, and which it was, and but the Winds of Winter was not around the corner. And then, of course, the question answer session, somebody asked who John Snow's mother was, <laughs> which is great. Sigh. Right, exactly. Like of, of like the five questions that George took, that was one of them. So you're like, eh, eh, eh. So that was what was what it was like at Balticon back in 2016. Doing this, uh, hearing George read this chapter, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, again, I, as George talked about recently in this blog post, he is hoping to have the Winds Winter in hand when he shows up to Worldcon in 2021, in Washington D.C., which I believe uh, Emma and I have talked about potentially going there. I think I'm actually going to make the uh, I'm actually going to like put the money down like within this week as we're recording and so i can like force myself to actually go down there so you might see both of us there i'm uh, definitely and- planning on being there hell yes we're hopefully getting a whole uh, a whole crew down yes. there would be an amazing party absolutely we could, we could have a not a cast house potentially potentially we'll see we'll see how it actually works it works itself out but uh yeah so um if you guys get the ever get the chance to have george read a chapter 
please please take advantage of it and uh not that not that that's uh, meant to criticize you for not coming down to Baltimore back in 2016 for the for the forsaken chapter but in a way it fits this chapter's like tone of religious loss and sacrifice <laughs> that I feel I wasn't there for the the one time my deity appeared in the flesh no no I, absolutely I mean again the the main transcript of the forsaken if you've read the forsaken it's probably my transcript that's been passed around a ton and I heard it I I transcribed it from a recording from someone I won't name who was there who recorded it for you know to, to, to pass that along and I I will never forget hearing the the crackly voice of George R. R. Martin in my earbuds as, as I wrote out the forsaken it's not the same thing as being there of course but that's part of the reason I love this chapter so much is it almost because I love it more because it's not been published it feels like this really intimate almost transitory experience between author and fan that a, a gift he gave to us and what is it he said when he he, he realized that that was going to be like the gray joys have it you sick motherfuckers yeah something or something like that, like yeah. that. The Greyjoys, yeah. All right, you sick motherfuckers. Like, cause he, exactly. He had, he had that something phrase is burned of, like, in my soul. It's a really yeah. fucked up chapter. And so <laughs> we're like, oh, because I mean, all of all of them, not me, are sinners. And so they were all cheering for it being a fucked up chapter. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, that, again, that's that 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 prelude to it is, is something I absolutely love. And if you want to yeah, want to sum up why I love the Forsaken so much, it's that the author himself seemed disappointed in the audience or terrified <laughs> of the audience when they chose to read it out loud. And that's something I love about it. So yeah, I love, I love that aspect of it. I, w- I wish we'd gotten the full book in between now and then, of course. But you know, if there's the the number one reason I am looking forward to the Winds of Winter fights, because one single reason is reading the Forsaken mm. on the page in the flesh, the real can- canonized form, and it's in part because of everything I heard from you folks who were there. So it's a wonderful story. It is, and you know. Thanks to George for providing the opportunity to not just let us hear a great chapter, but also of, of creating a community and helping us build friendships. And a, m- a number of those people that I've interacted with and was able to, to drink with the night before, but I was super fucking hungover for the Forsaken, I maintain a friendship with to this day. So I think that's a really cool part of the community is having friends that are existing far and wide across the entire, spanning the entire globe. And um, just based on this one singular love of one fantasy series in the form of a song of ice and fire so that's a uh, that's one of the great parts that uh i think george does and i think that we have here on our patreon as well which uh in a smaller kind of dose than uh you know the tens of millions of people that read a song of ice and fire but it's all really great and lovely completely agreed sir absolutely so that was our icebreaker for this this episode me uh, probably waxing a little bit too long on on my stories from from Baltica oh hush I wanted to hear all of it I soaked it in and so did the audience don't you dare criticize yourself <laughs> sir well hopefully you guys will be able to join us for Worldcon in 2020 which is taking place in Washington DC uh, we would love to see as many of you as as possible down there and interact with you and hey maybe you can get um, well maybe I'll, I'll be an old man at that point but hey maybe I will have a few drinks with you guys who knows we'll find out what happens in 2020. <laughs> So with that being said, let's move on to this synopsis of The Winds of Winter, The Forsaken, Part 1. It was always midnight in the belly of the beast. The mutes had robbed him of his robe and shoes and breech clout. He wore hair and chains and scabs. Salt water sloshed about his legs whenever the tide came in, rising as high as his generals, only to ebb again when the tide receded. His feet had grown huge and soft and puffy, shapeless things as big as hams. He knew that he was in some dungeon, but not where or how long. And that is the cheery start to the cheeriest of all cheery, cheery chapters in all of Cheeriest Song of Ice and Fire. 
Dampier thinks back to the last dungeon he was in, and then he was in the silence. He recalls being moved and seeing the face of the moon on the water and thinking it looked like Euron's face. There were rats there, biting him while he slept. Lice, fleas, and worms were in his beard and hair. His skin was raw and itching from the bites that they gave him. But all he could do was shout his tormentors. He was chained to the wall. When the tide rushed in to kiss him, the salt got into the wounds and made him gasp. When he slept, the darkness would rise up and swallow him, and then the dream would come, and Yuri, and the scream of a rusted hinge. The only light was the occasional lamp that visitors brought. One foul-looking guy brought him food, which was primarily salt beef, bread-crawling leafles, stinking fish, really delicious. Not really. He inhaled that food, but then he would puke it up afterwards most of the time. Aaron thinks this man's tongue was gone, but when the man left, he was left alone with the dark. But this guy wasn't the only visitor. And now it's only fair that Emmett gets to read this part of the synopsis. <laughs> Sometimes, Euron came himself. Aaron would wake from sleep to find his brother standing over him, lantern in hand. Once aboard the silence, he hung the lantern from a post and poured them cups of wine. Drink with me, brother, he said. That night he wore a shirt of iron scales and a cloak of blood-red silk. His eye patch was red leather, his lips blue. Why am I here? Aaron croaked at him. His lips were crusty with scabs, his voice hard. Where are we sailing? South. For conquest. Plunder. Dragons. Madness. My place is on the islands. Your place is where I want you. I am your king. What do you want of me? What can you offer me that I have not had before? Euron smiled. I left the islands in the hands of old Eric Ironmaker and sealed his loyalty with the hand of our sweet Asha. I would not have you preaching against his rule, so I took you with us. Release me. The god commands it. Drink with me. Your king commands it. Oh, that's so good, man. That's amazing work. <laughs> now I can see exactly what you're talking about for our, our, da- our part two of our Davis episode we just uh, released on our regular Ignaticast, you doing the Euron voice. It's amazing. Us, uh, oh, it's so good. Uh, it just makes my skin tingle. So thank you, sir. And you'll continue with, with Aaron in just a few moments. Likewise with Aaron. Thank you, sir. Euron grabs Aaron's hair, pulls his head back, and forces a liquid into his mouth. But it wasn't wine. Oh, no. Euron holds his mouth shut. It was thick and the taste changed every time he took a gulp. He tries spitting it out, but it's no use. Euron reveals that it's the, quote, wine of the warlocks. I curse you, Aaron said when the cup was empty. Liquor dripped from down his chin into his long black beard. If I had the tongue of every man who cursed me, I could make a cloak of them. Aaron hawked and spat. The spittle struck his brother's cheek and hung there, blue, black, glistening. Euron flicked it off his face with a forefinger, then licked the finger clean. Your god will come for you tonight. <clears throat> Some god, at least. And for those of you who are not watching, which is everyone but me for this particular instance, Emmett literally <laughs> flicked his cheek and licked it. It was Method acting, folks. Yes, it's brilliant. <laughs> it's like your role you've been preparing for your entire life. Damp hair slumps into his chains, hearing the rusty hinge. He falls into his sleep, crying for his brother Yuri. He wakes to find him. His brother Yuragon was long dead, yet there he stood. One arm was black and swollen, stinking with maggots, but he was still Yuri, still a boy no older than the day he died. You know what's await below the sea, brother? 
The drowned god, Eren said. The watery halls! Uri shook his head. Worms. Worms await you, Aaron. Then Yuri laughs and his face sloughs off, and under the face it wasn't Yuri at all. It was Euron wearing black head to heels sitting on top of a mountain of blackened skulls. The bleeding star bespoke the end. These are the last days when the world shall be broken and remade. A new god shall be born from the graves and charnel pits. Then Euron lifted a great horn to his lips and blew. And dragons and krakens and sphinxes came at his command and bowed before him. Kneel, brother, the crow's eye commanded. I am your king. I am your god. Worship me, and I will raise you up to be my priest. Never. No godless man may sit the sea stone chair. Why would I want that black rock? Brother, look again and see where I am seated. Aaron Dampere looked. The mound of skulls was gone. Now it was metal underneath. The crow's eye. A great, tall, twisted seat of razor-sharp iron barbs and blades and broken swords, all dripping blood. Good lord, this chapter is incredible and amazingly quotable. And guys, like summarizing is actually really hard to like do this. My portion of this episode, like Emmett wrote a ton of shit, and I'm like here just being like, yeah, let's just quote the whole fucking chapter as we do for this <laughs> for the synopsis. That's gonna be my contribution to this chapter. But let's do a little actual synopsizing for right now as we get to the good part of this chapter. Dampier sees the seven aspects of God impaled onto the Iron Throne that is from the faith of the seven, and then he sees the foreign gods of Essos, the great shepherd, the black goat, three-headed Trios, the pale child Bacalon, the Lord of Light, and the butterfly god of but there amongst all the gods was the drowned god himself sea water falling from his hair onto the floor then Euron laughs Aaron wakes and pisses himself thinking it was only a dream the last thing that Aaron remembered was the king's mood and watching Euron Greyjoy lifted high he warned Victarion about Euron bringing down the wrath of the old uh, bringing down the wrath of the drowned god but Victarion insists that the drowned god lifted Euron up only deity could bring Euron back down Dampier realizes that this meant that Victarion would not work against Euron. The priest damns himself for calling a king's moon in the first place, imagining that he should have known better, but he had to undo it all. So he decides to do something which Stannis should have done if you listened to her 160th episode of the regular Not a Cast podcast. He decides to go to the common folk and have them tear Euron down. Some of his drowned men try to follow him, but he wants to be alone with his god. Bad choice, Aaron shouldn't have done that. He wades out into the icy cold water and submerges himself in it. And the drowned god comes to him. Aaron, my good and faithful servant, you must tell the Ironborn that the crow's eye is no true king, that the sea stone chair by rights belongs to... 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 He, uh, I mean, the drowned god says it's not Victarion's role, it's not Asha's either, despite Balin loving her best. You see, women can't rule. It's their womanist being so very, very womanly that prevents them from being good leaders. It's <sighs> nothing personal, right? She shouldn't have made a claim anyways. Now, maybe if Victarion had taken Asha for a wife, it could have all worked out and everyone went back to the old way it could have worked out. Yeah, but no dice. Aaron returns back to the shore full of resolve. Full of fierce resolve to take down Euron by faith, his hair falls down over his eyes. And that was where they took him, the mutes who had been watching him, waiting for him, stalking him through the strand and the spray. A hand clapped down across his mouth and something hard cracked against the back of his skull. The next time he had opened his eyes, the damp hair found himself fettered in the darkness. Then came the fever and the taste of blood in his mouth as he twisted in the chains. 
deep in the bowels of the silence. A weaker man might have wept, but Aaron Dampere prayed, waking, sleeping. Even in his fever dreams, he prayed, My God is testing me. I must be strong. I must be true. In the dungeon, a woman brought him food instead of Euron's mute. She was young and pretty. She had nice clothes of a noble Greenlander. Aaron commands her to free him, but she says she can't. She brings him porridge and honey to eat. She sits by Aaron and feeds him. Damper asks where they are, and the woman responds that they're in her father's castle on Oakenshield. By the way, her name is Folly of Flowers. She's the bastard daughter of Lord Hewitt, and she's going to be your King Euron's salt wife. Pour one out already for her, fellas. Things are not going to go well for her. Woman! His chains clink when he moved. Run. He will hurt you. He will kill you. She laughed. Silly! He won't. I'm his love, his lady. He gives me gifts, so many gifts. Silks and furs and jewels. Rags and rocks, he calls them. The crow's eye puts no value in such things. That was one of the things that drew men to his service. Most captains kept the lion's share of their plunder, but Euron took almost nothing for himself. Falia goes on to talk about how she was mistreated by her half-sisters and forced to be their Cinderella, but then Euron made her sisters serve made her sisters serve her naked. He so totally did this because Euron, because he loved her, and she's going to give him sons. So many sons. He has sons, Stamphair said. Baseborn boys and mongrels, Euron says. My sons will come before them. He has sworn, sworn by your own drowned god. Aaron asks Folly if she'd bring a message to Victarion for him. She's willing, sure, but sadly, so sadly, Victarion is gone. Well, where the fuck did he go? East, she said, with all his ships. Uh, he's to bring the Dragon Queen to Westeros. I'm to be Euron's salt wife, but he must have a rock wife too, a queen, to rule all Westeros at his side. They say she's the most beautiful woman in the world, and she has dragons. The two of us will be close as sisters. <laughs> That's amazing, dude. Just like <laughs> you, you, you span the whole depth of Euron Greyjoy to Folly of Flowers <laughs> to Euron Greyjoy. The most Flowers, romantic is... relationship, truly. Right? Absolutely brilliant, though, all around. So thank you, sir, for doing that. Really, really appreciate it. And Likewise. that concludes the synopsis for part one of The Winds of Winter, The Forsaken. Now, there are better books out there. There might be anyways. There are maybe even better chapters than A Song of Ice and Fire. Danny's 10th chapter from A Dance of Dragons. But there is no chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire that dares evoke the emotions and especially that feeling of horror that The Forsaken does. It's glorious. And I'm sure you completely disagree with my assessment, dude. Oh, I hate this chapter. Why are we doing this, Jeff? <laughs> so here we are, staring into the void, trembling as it stares back at us. The Forsaken is a black hole buried deep in A Song of Ice and Fire, a living nothing that absorbs everything it touches. It is designed, as Jeff says, to do more than scare or shock or titillate. It is designed to bring you to your knees. It is a work of profound spiritual awe. When George declared at the beginning of A Feast for Crows that we were entering the age of wonder and terror, this chapter is what he was talking about. It is not only my favorite chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire, it might be my favorite isolated chunk of fiction. Full stop. I can't praise it enough, but I will try. 
And we're going to do that definitely in these 31 pages of this this document for just like the first half of this chapter. So mm-hmm. on the frequently asked questions of George R. Martin's website, he answers the question, I want to be a writer. What can I do? And let me just quote his response in full. The most important thing for any aspiring writer, I think, is to read and not just the sort of thing you're trying to write, be that fantasy, science fiction, comic books, whatever. You need to read everything. Read fiction, nonfiction, magazines, newspapers, read history, historical fiction, biography, read mystery novels, fantasy, science fiction, horror, mainstream literary classics, erotica, adventure, satire. Every writer has something to teach you for good or ill. And yes, you can learn from bad books as well as good ones. What not to do. So all of the books, magazines, newspapers, all of the all of the different genres of books, you could really see their influence on Martin as it bleeds out into this chapter, The Winds of Winter, The Forsaken. And these are not just Easter eggs, right? I mean, George has done Easter eggs before in A Song of Ice and Fire. But in this chapter, that ain't it, Chief, as the hashtag youths like to say. In The Forsaken, the confluence of influences steeps the narrative in the great works of art that have gone before it. This chapter is not just an Easter egg. It's in dialogue with its peers. And by peers, I mean some of the greatest works of literature in human history. Might sound like overstatement, but I promise you it's not. So writers, you ain't shit unless you're a reader and reading beyond your comfort zones and interests. Look no further than The Forsaken and see how George R. R. Martin brings the literary house down with just a single chapter. I think you're so right. It's it's the, the boundaries he casually breaks and reforms in his wake that makes The Forsaken so special within the canon of George R. R. Martin and the canon of literature in general. And there is so much to discuss here. So I wanted to start by, I think, briefly summarizing the, the layers at work in The Forsaken. Everything we're going to be talking about before we break them down one by one. What is George trying to accomplish with this chapter? He is advancing the arc of spiritual crisis that defines our POV Aaron Greyjoy. Even before The Winds of Winter, this was a clearly established motif in his chapters in The Feast for Crows. George is digging deeper into the worldview and backstory that defines Euron Greyjoy, one of the more prominent non-point-of-view characters in his story. He is paying homage to horror masters past and present, most prominently Lovecraft, and Lovecraft is the person most people bring up when they talk about this chapter, but really it's, it's a broad sense of horror as a tone across the board that George is evoking here. He is incorporating ideas and imagery from the psychedelic era of Western pop culture, an era that really, I think, produced George R. R. Martin as an author more than almost anything else. And he is grounding his fantasy saga in Christian mysticism, Hindu and Buddhist uh, philosophy, modernist poetry, the interwar dread of the 20th century, etc., etc., etc. As you say, an endless list of influences, and that's what The Forsaken brings out. And what all of this together produces is the groundwork for the apocalypse that will unfold and take over his particular story. And on that point, this is what Westeros, I think, is going to look like in The Winds Winter. It's kind of a a preview. It's not just a preview for The Winds Winter. It's a preview for what the entire content will look like in The Winds Winter in totality. As George R. Martin said in 2016, when asked about this chapter in particular, this is just a preview of what's to come, in which he said, quote, yeah, this is a dark chapter, but there are lots of dark chapters right now in the book that I'm writing. It's called The Winds of Winter, and I've been telling you for 20 years that winter was coming. Winter is the time when things die and cold and ice and darkness fill the world. So this is not going to be the happy feel good that many people might be hoping for. So that's George talk. That's the first part of the George quote. We'll circle back to the other part of it. There is another layer amidst all of the darkness, and that is that things eventually will get 
better. George has talked about that there will be people and characters that survive a Song of Ice and Fire and that will live on. So with that in mind, here's the closing part of that George quote from 2016. In any story, the classic structure is things get worse before they get better. So things are getting worse for a lot of people. Amidst all of the literal and metaphorical darkness that Aaron Damper sees in this chapter, there are glimmers of light, torches that Aaron's visitors bring in the physical sense, Aaron's bravery in the metaphorical one. We've got to go through the hell of winter, darkness and death to even be dreaming of spring, light, and life. Perfectly said, sir. One of the things I love about A Song of Ice and Fire is how you see George is trying to capture the entirety of the human experience. The highs and the lows, the summer and the winter. And in order to establish any kind of, I think, you know, hope or or real sense of, of communality and serenity and peace at the end, he has to establish the absolute worst that human beings can go through. And that, I think, is what The Forsaken is about. As infinitely dense as The Forsaken is, as I said, the best comparison is to a black hole, George summarizes the entire blazing tentacled <laughs> edifice for us in the opening line. It was always midnight in the belly of the beast. The flow of time, the cycle of the seasons, summer to winter, dawn to dusk to dawn, birth to death to rebirth, the structure that defines life as we know it, it has been stilled, stopped. Now, the most immediate in-universe association with this line is, of course, with the long night, the apocalyptic state of permanent nuclear winter. Hmm. So George is hinting right off the bat with the first sentence that Euron as a character is here to bring the long night about. He is here to return us to the state that only old Nan has talked about. But in this chapter, he is also exploring what the long night means philosophically. And I think this, this, this line immediately reminded me on this reread of the Doomsday Clock, the device that metaphorically throughout the Cold War and beyond measures how close humanity is getting to apocalypse, to collective suicide, represented by midnight. As Eugene Rep. Rabinowitz, the co-founder of Bulletin for Atomic Scientists, on which the, the nuclear doomsday clock features on the cover very prominently, <laughs> he said, The Bulletin's clock is not a gauge to register the ups and downs of the international power struggle. It is intended to reflect basic changes in the level of continuous danger in which mankind lives in the nuclear age. And to put this in A Song of Ice and Fire terms, Euron Greyjoy in this chapter exists somewhat outside the Civil War, somewhat outside the War of Five Kings. Instead, this chapter is measuring how close we are getting to an end that the War of Five Kings could not even conceive of, <laughs> in the state of apocalypse in which the War of Five Kings has been existing from the start. It also puts me in mind, speaking of the nuclear age of the Cold War, this, this chapter puts me in mind, and its opening line puts me in mind, of the clocks and watches that stopped in place in Hiroshima after the nuclear bomb fell. Power at its godlike height stops time itself. <laughs> or rather, it stops our human record of time. It stops the appearance of time. Time still, time still clicks forward for Aaron Greyjoy in this chapter. He is forced to endure every agonizing moment. Time around him, however, seems to have stopped, and that is what he's expressing with this opening line. Aaron is the equivalent of Shinji Makimo, who suffered agonizing wounds during the Hiroshima bombing in Japan in 1945. And later, going over the, the remains, the ruins, he stumbled upon his father's pocket watch. 
The hands have been blasted off, but their shadowy imprint on the watch face itself remained, frozen in time. We continue to suffer and die, no matter how we try to use power to conquer time. I, I have been haunt, haunted since I first read it by how Shinji's daughter Akiko described this in her book, Rising from the Ashes, a true story of survival and forgiveness from Hiroshima. Quote, At that moment, my father knew his father was dead. Something about the watch told him that. He burst into tears on the sight with the watch in his hand. Now, he was really on his own. The spiritual movement of the universe that gave Aaron Dampere comfort, the, quote, mighty pillar that protected him from Euron, has ceased. Euron has hit the pause button on life itself. The Forsaken takes place in the timeless time that defines a spiritual understanding just beyond the reach of us time-bound humans. The poet T.S. Eliot described it so well in his poem, Burnt Norton. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance. And there is only the dance. God is outside of time. This is one of the many reasons humanity cannot comprehend the divine, because every single mote of our understanding is filtered through time. In St. Augustine's Confessions, he talks about how prayer is this vessel that takes him outside of time to where God is. And I would argue that Confessions is the guiding ur-text that defines the forsaken, the influence that binds all the other influences together. This is what Carl G. Vaught had to say about the defining images and concepts of Augustine's work in his Journey Toward God in Augustine's Confessions. This is what he said kind of summed up the entirety of the work for us ag agnostics and atheists on the outside. <laughs> Let us gather up the metaphors that express Augustine's resistance to the upward journey toward God. By learning how to speak, he plunges into the stormy fellowship of human life. By not being able to persuade his mother to secure baptism for him, he is left unwashed by the cleansing waters of salvation. By being caught in the torrent of man's ways, he is swept down into a mighty and hideous ocean over which those who are born upon the tree can hardly cross. By participating in the hellish flood of fictional discourse. He internalizes the ocean by dashing against the rocks of his soul and by roaring out the words that are intended to deceive his audience. By learning words like thunder, rain, and golden shower in rhetorical contexts, he embraces useful words in useless ways. And by undertaking a journey that is neither geographical nor epistemic, but a volational way of falling away from God. He is a desert rather than a cultivated field that will make it possible for him to return to the garden of his father. However, only God can reverse this process of degeneration when he breaks his silence 
and speaks to Augustine's fragmented heart. Hmm. The connections there to the forsaken, the chapter under discussion today, are so numerous and specific that I believe them to be deliberate on George's part. The ocean, the torrents, the rocks, the storm, the silence, all of these return in the forsaken. Even the golden shower, that becomes the name of Aaron's ship, the golden storm. Now, as the more perverted and gutter-minded among you will note, <laughs> the golden shower means something very, very base and sexual in our times, the sexual pleasure of having someone else urinate upon you. But hey, what was the golden storm named after? Aaron's dick. And what does urine sound like? Urine. So you could say the entirety of this chapter is taking the glory of St. Augustine's confession and turning it into the piss that was behind the scenes the whole time. Aaron has not flown to the bosom of his God to be comforted, to quote Alexander Hamilton. Oh, quite the opposite. He, as he says in the opening line of this chapter, is in the belly of the beast. He is in the pit. He is in hell. An aspect of, of Augustine's Confessions that uh, if you guys have never read it, and if you're not even a Christian, if you're an atheist or whatever religion you're part of, it's a very moving piece of literature and, and it's, it's inspiration on especially Western European canon to include North America and the world that is the Western Hemisphere is profound. So it's worth reading just for that context itself. But part of it, too, is that Augustine is synthesizing some of the own concepts that he grew up with, Greek ideas, Latin ideas that he was exposed to, the history that he was exposed to as well. He was a Roman citizen, a Latin speaker, though he didn't speak it that well. People always criticize him for his accents he talks about in the Confessions itself. He was an outsider attempting to make his way on the inside. And that is very much what how Damp Hare kind of feels in this chapter and kind of feels with his relationship to the drowned god. But you were talking about hell, and I think it's important to kind of set some context about, yeah, right, you're laughing, but you're right. You're talking about hell, and I think it's important to set some context of hell as it actually is understood in a Christian context. Because there's this idea that's been popularly believed by Western European cultures and countries, and countries that have been inspired by Western European co country, by Western European culture, is that hell is fire and torment. And we have Dante to thank for that. Thanks, Dante. You're wrong. The hell that Jesus talks about in the Gospels is less the fire and more of the darkness, as he tells, talks about in the parable of, uh, in one of his parables, he says, then the king told the attendant, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In a Christian context, hell is a place of eternal death, of eternal darkness, always dying. That's the torture. It's not demons going around and beating with rods and whipping you. It's about being in always dying, so to speak. It's about mm. being in darkness, but there is no light to be found. It's the same place that Aaron Greyjoy is in here at the belly of the silence, lost in darkness, in constant pain, near death always. He hasn't reached death yet, but it's coming soon. I feel, again, from the outside, and I'm, uh, you know, personally, I was I was uh, raised in a Jewish context, and if I had to say anything that I personally am, I'm more <laughs> atheist and agnostic. The, the, the sense of hell I've gotten from the outside is what hell is profoundly is isolation mm -hmm. and being cut off from your fellow man, cut off from your fellow beings. And what the forsaken suggests is that God is not love. No, God is not love as he's supposed to be. No, God is power. And this is the revelation that binds all the chapter's influences together in George's mind, from Lovecraft to Augustine. The world we live in 
is a permanently fallen world, which will only continue to degenerate as we go. God is never going to break the silence, the silence for which Euron's ship is named. The Forsaken draws its power in large part from the author's lapsed Catholicism, the, the fall he has taken part in. It is a peerless expression of decaying faith. My personal favorite author, Thomas Pynchon, <laughs> captured this sentiment so beautifully in Gravity's Rainbow. It's been a prevalent notion. Fallen sparks. Fragments of vessels broken at the creation. And someday, somehow, before the end, a gathering back to home. A messenger from the kingdom arriving at the last moment. But I tell you, there is no such message. No such home. Only the millions of last moments. No more. Hmm. Our history is an aggregate of last moments. And more directly relevant to Augustine, our guiding text here, the poet T.S. Eliot wrote his poetry cycle, Four Quartets, in part as tribute to Augustine's writing, filtered through the movements of time and the seasons that we've mentioned. Four quartets for four seasons. Winter, a kind of, you know, this this uh, symbol for, for, for death and endings. That poetry cycle begins with two cycles from Heraclitus, one of which reads, The way upward and the way downward is one and the same. So that which was spiritual ascent for St. Augustine became descent for Eliot who believed he was watching Christendom collapse around him, building on the nigh-apocalyptic pessimism of his defining work, The Wasteland, and for Aaron Greyjoy in this chapter as well. Aaron has been swallowed whole into the belly of the beast, as that opening line suggests, like Jonah, who is being punished by God for forsaking his command to go and spread his word. Yet ironically, Aaron was preparing to go and spread his drowned god's word. He was doing the job. That's what he was planning on doing after the king's moot. So why this reversal? I think George is communicating that even a version of Jonah who followed his god's will would end up in the same place, the same punishment, because God is not love. God is power. <laughs> Moreover, Aaron has made a specific theological error in pursuing not truth itself, but comfort. Many skeptics have argued this undercuts religious faith as a whole. David Hume, the famed Enlightenment philosopher, wrote this in his History of Natural Religion. But what passion shall we here have recourse to for explaining an effect of such mighty consequence, that consequence being religious faith? Not speculative curiosity, surely, or the pure love of truth. No, that motive is too refined for <laughs> such gross apprehensions and would lead men into inquiries concerning the frame of nature, a subject too large and comprehensive for their narrow capacities. No passions, therefore, can be supposed to work upon such barbarians, but the ordinary affections of human life, the anxious concern for happiness, the dread of future misery, the terror of death, the thirst of revenge, the appetite for food and other necessaries. Agitated by hopes and fears of this nature, especially the latter, Men scrutinize with a trembling curiosity the course of future causes and examine the various and contrary events of human life. And in this disordered scene, with eyes still more disordered and astonished, they see the first obscure traces of divinity. <laughs> and Euron made this exact same argument back in his introductory scene that we talked about in the first part of this four-part look at the Forsaken. Everyone, he says, is praying to the gods for succor for relief, for protection. But that's not what God is. 
To put it more succinctly, religion is the opiate of the masses. We are motivated to seek God not by the presence of the divine, but its absence, projecting shape into a shapeless void, the silence. We seek God not out of love, but because we cannot explain pain otherwise. <laughs> Psychologist Gordon Alport talked about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivations for faith, and he said, Perhaps the briefest way to characterize the two poles of subjective religion is to say that the extrinsically motivated person uses his religion, whereas the intrinsically motivated lives his religion. And as we see throughout the Forsaken, Aaron thinks of himself as an intrinsically motivated person, but really his faith falls firmly <laughs> on the extrinsic side. For all that he has tried to rid himself of all attachment to, his, to this mortal veil in order to seek God, as St. Augustine and St. John of the Cross would encourage, he is ultimately using his religion to shield himself from the world, rather than living it to inhabit the truth. Theology was the only available vessel for healing for Aaron. It was the only way to put the broken fragments of his self, the broken man, to borrow from Septon Marable, left behind by Euron, back together again. But to borrow from Manhunter, a movie obsessed with theological transformation as filtered through the poet William Blake, the source of light is burning. <laughs> Aaron has no apotheosis. He has only death awaiting him. He is that moth circling the flame in Circe's first chapter in the Feast for Crows that she wishes would just fly into the flame and die, get it over with. That's Aaron Greyjoy. And he cannot cope with that truth because truth is not what he sought in the first place. It was relief from suffering. And I can relate to that. I think everyone can relate to that. But mm -hmm. suffering in truth only ends with death. That's exactly right. And there's a quote, death comes to those who embrace light and darkness angle, which is part of the point of this chapter. Part of Aaron's perspective is embracing religion as his crutch to keep moving forward in life because his past traumas at the hands of Euron Greyjoy and at the hands of the Greyjoy Rebellion has paralyzed him. The mortal, tangible world doesn't make sense. Why would my older brother abuse me? Why would Yuri die? Aaron originally found meeting in the old way, wine, wenching, song, reaving, and of course, slaughter. We all know some people at least who have attempted to find meaning in this lifestyle knowing that it masks the traumas of their youth. But after Fair Isle, Aaron sank to the bottom of the sea and came out thinking that he had meeting in the drowned god. His first god of, of hedonistic violence proved a false one. It didn't save him from Stannis' fury. So he gives himself over to the drowned god, believing that the sodden deity can be a new crutch, can silence the rusted hinge. You can almost hear Augustine's famous quote, the one that people always know from, from, the, uh, from the confessions, the one that people will quote here in how Aaron kind of regards God, the drowned god specifically. You, which is God, have made us for yourselves, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. That's a rather idealistic version of what Dampere believes he's found in the drowned god, rest with the God who cares and loves Dampere so much that he's created him. And as we talked about in part one of this series, though, Dampere comes to believe so strongly in that God that he believes the drowned God speaks directly to and through him. But sadly, again, as we talked about in part one, it ain't the drowned God's voice. It's Dampere's, the subconscious voice that begs to be thought of as special and not deserving of more trauma, the guy who 
was abused at an early age and is now a man seeking to find meaning in a world which seems so forever meaningless. And you can say that Dampier is being, he's being hypocritical. He's saying this is the way the world works when really he's just trying to deal with his own personal shit. But on the other hand, one could argue, even specifically with regards to Jonah, that, you know, no one really seeks God for the purest and most (laughs) selfless of motives. God gave Jonah shade under a tree and then took it away. When Jonah complained, God noted Jonah's hypocrisy. Because Jonah had fled his original mission of spreading the word of God out of disillusionment with the people of Nineveh, who sought God only out of relief for comfort. Well, as it turns out, he's no more pure than them after all. So by filtering the story of Aaron Damper through the story of Jonah, we can see that Aaron's true error was not seeking God purely as a defense against Euron. That's very relatable. That's very human. I think we would all do the same thing. Aaron's error was that he never extended this comfort to anyone else. He scorned the rest of humanity. And in that way, Aaron's worldview is actually very similar to that of his big brother Euron, who looks (laughs) down on other people as insects. Aaron must break himself out of his cage. He must change himself before he can change others. And that's something we see in the Gospel of Matthew. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou and then shalt thou see clearly to cast the mote out of thy brother's eye. Brother being very literal in this case. <laughs> and that ties perfectly into what the belly of the beast from Aaron's opening line represents for students of Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell. The belly in the hero's journey structure is a womb, and the permanent darkness within, the eternal state of midnight from the opening line of the Forsaken, represents death. Euron, therefore, is the god of death. By emerging from that belly, Aaron can be reborn. Though whether that's going to be a good (laughs) thing or a bad thing in this case is something we're going to have to discuss next month when the Forsaken wraps up. And that darkness too, it's interesting in the book of Genesis is it also is how creation starts, how Genesis 1 2 opens up. So we have Genesis 1 1, which everyone knows is in the beginning, God created the world and such as like that. But Genesis 1 2, I find really fascinating because the next line is now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Here in this chapter, the darkness is the immediacy after creation. It is tied with the lack of form. The world is disordered. The world is disordered, empty, dark for Aaron great joy. This is where Dampere finds himself in this chapter outside of time and space. There's no form to this world that he's inhabiting. There's only darkness, only occasionally lifted, only occasionally relieved by, by lamplight. And everything in this new world, everything that defined the persona of the Dampere, is being taken away from Aaron Greyjoy, leaving only the flawed, sinful flesh, hmm. the painful cage for the immortal soul. No more robes, no more shoes, no more breech clout. Now Aaron wears hair, chains, and scabs in their place. He thought he had given it all up for God. Well, now he knows better. That George associates hair, chains, and scabs all together gets at the heart of the questions being raised in this chapter. Aaron is wearing literal chains, but also figurative chains. His soul is caged, as well as his body, and he has been wearing those internal chains for years now. The loss of his priestly effects, the signifiers that made him damp hair, voice of God, 
They've left him alone in the dark with those chains. And who took it all away from him? Euron's mute servants. They are denied the word. Language, one of humanity's defining gifts. St. Augustine writes very movingly in his confessions about how his struggle toward language was one and the same with his struggle towards God. It was a framework for naming the world. It was not that my elders taught me words, as soon after other learning, in any set method, but I, longing by cries and broken accents and various motions of my limbs to express my thoughts, that so I might have my will, and yet unable to express all I willed, or to whom I willed, did myself, by the understanding which thou, my God, gavest me, practice the sounds in my memory. When they named anything, and as they spoke, turned towards it, I saw and remembered that they called what they would point out by the name they uttered, and that they meant this thing and no other was plain from the motion of their body, the natural language, as it were, of all nations, expressed by the countenance, glances of the eye, gestures of the limbs, and tones of the voice, indicating the affections of the mind as it pursues, possesses, rejects, or shuns. And thus, by constantly hearing words as they occurred in various sentences, I collected gradually for what they stood, and having broken in my mouth to these signs, I thereby gave utterance to my will. Thus I exchanged with those about me these current signs of our wills, and so launched deeper into the stormy intercourse of human life, yet depending on parental authority and the beck of elders." What Euron is here to do is interrupt the stormy intercourse of human life at its twin cores, spirituality and language, each giving constant voice to the other. He directs all of it, both of those, towards himself. He has not literally cut out Aaron's tongue, not yet anyway, <laughs> but he is putting Aaron through this intense physical torture in order to challenge his identity as the voice of God, as the tongue of God, the language of God. As the title of The Forsaken indicates, Aaron's God is not coming to save him. So what good is he? If the rule you follow brought you here, of what use was the rule? That's the question that Aaron Dampier is going to have to answer for sure. And I think it's one that was echoed in history by, by Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And credit to Eliana from the Girls Gone Canon podcast who wrote an excellent essay, which Sworn Swords and Hires can read the uh, the show notes, which I include a link to, with the above quote on her take on the forsaken and religion for turning me onto the specific parallels between the torture, crucifixion, and death of Jesus and what Aaron Dampere experiences in the forsaken. All of the torture, the pain, everything that Dampere is experiencing, it works as George's take on the stations of the cross in Catholic Christian Christ Christography. Condemnation of death, first, second, third fall, meaning the women of Jerusalem, etc., etc. The important takeaway is not that George is ripping off the gospel writers or 11th to 14th century Western European Catholic writers who really began the concept of the Stations of the Cross. Instead, it works as George's meditation on his upbringing, what happens when the Jesus figure in A Song of Ice and Fire, I guess, in the form of Dan Perry, comes up against the devil figure of A Song of Ice and Fire, for sure, in the form of Euron Greyjoy. As Elian wrote in her essay, Euron's portrayal as the devil shows the immensity of his role as a villain beyond just the acts that he has done. It sets him up as this larger-than-life force and asks the question that is that if this be Satan the deceiver, then who would be powerful enough to stand up against him? 
As we'll talk about in part four of this series, the end point for both Aaron Dampere and Jesus of Nazareth is death. The difference, though, is whether there will be deliverance from that death in the end, whether there will be life eternal that flows from their deaths. Whether there's optimism or pessimism to be found on the other side. And, you know, in, in this first half of the chapter, it's, it's pretty pessimistic. <laughs> Not only does God fail to deliver Aaron from the clutches of the devil, he seems to be directly mocking Aaron's hopes. Salt water, the essence of the drowned god, that which Aaron used to literally drink, floods into his dungeon and makes his wounds fester all the more here in the Forsaken. It's not a blessing. It's not a baptism, as Aaron thought about it in the Feast for Crows. It's just water. And if it drowns you, you're not coming back this time. Men are meat, as Aaron says, and he is treating Aaron like meat. He is salting him, keeping him in the background waiting to eat him later on. In these, in the brief moments in between dungeons, Aaron says he glimpsed the moon, but the man in the moon had Euron's face. Euron has already become a god in Aaron's mind. He's already a natural force, part of the elements, a leering light in the darkness. There is no escaping him. Light itself comes so rarely to Aaron in the Forsaken that it starts to hurt his eyes. His world is so awful, so rotten and corrupted and devoid of meaning that light itself has become a curse. The sea is no relief. The sky is no relief. The light is no relief. Even food is no relief. It's stinking, rotten, covered in weevils. Aaron throws it up every time. This is a state of spiritual crisis in which all the world seems turned against you, nature itself a servant of the enemy. Even his dreams are no relief, because whenever Aaron manages to fall asleep, he hears the scream of a rusted hinge, and he sees his brother Aragon. Aaron's subconscious torments him like a crown of thorns, even before Euron shows up, because the fear and guilt and shame are all internalized. The call is coming from inside the house. That's what his god was supposed to take away. And now his god has fallen silent, leaving Aaron alone with his memories and his ghosts. The past infects the present. The scream of that hinge, that rusted door hinge, evokes his fear of Euron, the memory of Euron coming into Aaron and Aragon's room at night to molest them. Aaron's mighty pillars have forsaken him, left him alone with that sound they were supposed to silence. Uri's ghost, however, evokes not fear, but guilt. Uri was the one brother Euron didn't kill. Aaron is responsible for Uri's death because they were playing the finger game where you toss a knife back and forth because you're brave and tough and you're ironborn. <laughs> and in the process, Uri lost a finger. And then their father, Quellon's third wife, a piper from the mainland, tried to heal the wounds Greenland-style with their maester. It didn't work, and Aragon died. I think this is part of why Aaron ended up rejecting mainland ways so vehemently, and why he so slavishly hero-worshipped his big brother Balon, who came home from the war as the new lord of the Iron Islands and punished the maester brutally. As long as Aaron can filter Uri's death through his political, cultural mindset, as long as his mighty pillars are there to reassure him, Aaron can f avoid feeling responsible for the death of the person he loved most. But now Balin is dead, and his god has forsaken him. 
and his beloved old way culture ended up empowering Euron further at the king's moot. It has all come crumbling down. What makes this chapter so compelling to me is that it's not just an endless parade of external torments being inflicted on our POV character. The internal demons are there as well. Euron, like all worthwhile devils, <laughs> kind of has a point. Not that anything he's doing is remotely justified, but that he wouldn't have succeeded if the old way was what Aaron wants it to be, needs it to be. It never was. And so Euron shows up in person to start deconstructing Aaron's worldview and rebuilding it from scratch now that his brother was in such a weak position. Euron's appearance gradually transforms throughout the Forsaken, most obviously in Aaron's dreams, but also in real life in terms of just what he's wearing. Here, in his first appearance in the chapter, he is still wearing common iron scales. No Valyrian steel armor yet. <laughs> this is part of the smiling eye, as it's called, the pirate costume he uses to win over the Ironborn by pretending like he's authentically one of them. His cloak of, quote, blood-red silk, however, that's the hint to his true ambition. <laughs> as Makuro puts it, Euron will sail on a sea of blood. Aaron's holy ocean is permanently defiled by that. And then there's Euron's face, which is where George works out the eerie conflations and contradictions that define his character. Currently, in this little scene here, he's got blue lips and a red eye patch. Blue and red are the, the opposite ends of the spectrum of visual light. Blue is commonly associated with cold, red is commonly associated with heat. In the real world, as well as in this story, blue is for ice, red is for fire. In countless traditions and modern storytelling, red and blue are used as convenient archetypes to work out ideas about duality and oppositional traits. Blue Oni versus Red Oni, Marid versus Ifrit, dispassionate Vulcan versus the red shirts whose passions <laughs> tend to get them killed. Or to stay within this story, Brienne versus Melisandre that we talked about in Catalan 3. And of course, Red for the Dragons. The red and black of House Targaryen versus the blue eyes of the others associated with blue and white throughout the story. Yet even as George sets up these opposites, he loves hinting at connections, commonalities between seeming opposites, and Euron's M.O. is bringing all kinds of power together to the darkness where he binds them. He is red and blue. He is fire and ice. He is Valyrian and White Walker. <laughs> He is the culmination of the old way, but also its doom. He is both man and God. If that sounds like Jesus, it's not by accident. <laughs> Those blue lips come from the warlock drug of the Far East, but you also get blue lips from exposure to extreme cold, as if those lips will press against the horn of winter. The red eye patch is there to make us think of fire and blood, of Euron's obsession with Valyria and his desire to attain dragons, as he reminds both Aaron and the reader in this scene, we're going south for dragons, as he says. But I think that red eye patch is also meant to make us think of Bloodraven, who had red eyes due to his albinism. And Bloodraven, despite his Targaryen roots, is now linked to the far north. Moreover, that eye patch is literally covering up the crow's eye. So while Euron's public legend, his public face, speaks to the Far East, his hidden self is linked to the Far North. Absolutely correct. It's that combination of these colors that George utilizes to explain, do the storytelling that he doesn't have to come out and say that Euron is inspired by the Targaryens, by dragons, <clears throat> or that he's inspired by the others as well. 
It's the fire and blood from the dragons that Euron seeks to control, and also the black hands of the whites grasping to squeeze the air and life out of the living, as John finds out in A Game of Thrones. This is the wrong kind of union of between fire and ice, right? It's the type of balance that the... It, yes, it's a type of balance that the Song of Ice and Fire seeks, but the balance is one, in Euron's case, that doesn't bring life. It brings death. And that's intentional on George's part to show us that Yes, it is always good to combat against extremism. At the same time, though, if you unify the two extremes and meet in the middle and your still end state is the death of all things living, it's not a good end state. I know, controversial as that sounds. And in this kind of, this in-between state, the state where all things come together, all ideas are made as one, Aaron asks, why am I here? And there is a sly double meaning there, in that Aaron is not only asking for his literal location, but his spiritual location. Why am I here? <laughs> Why was I born? Why am I on earth? Why did God make us only to forsake us? Why will he not deliver me from hell? One of my favorite movies, The Coen Brothers' A Serious Man, has a great expression of this idea. Why does he make us feel the questions if he's not going to give us any answers? Aaron believes his place, his answer, is on the holy islands, the Iron Islands. But in all likelihood, he's never going to see those islands again. Euron left the Iron Islands in the hands of Eric Ironmaker and took Aaron with him to silence him. Euron believes that Aaron's place is with him because Euron is king. More than that, Euron is godhead. Hmm. Euron is here to replace the drowned god. So when Aaron says that God demands his liberation, Euron shoots back that the king demands he drink. And what is he forcing Aaron to drink? Shade of the Evening, of course. <laughs> Euron offered Shade of the Evening to Victarion in the chapter of the Reaver, but Victarion spat it out. Aaron has no such luxury here. Euron forces him to swallow it. The flavor of Shade of the Evening changes with every swallow, because like Euron, it is a shapeshifter. It is the opposite of the iron cultural constant that Aaron desperately desires to exist. And so, in Euron's mind, Shade of the Evening contains truth. It breaks all borders, like he does. Far more truth in that than the seawater Aaron used to drink and now eats at his wounds. Aaron curses Euron in response. Back when he was respected as the damp hair, his, curse, his curses carried social cultural weight. Everyone responded to them. But they do not carry literal, metaphysical weight, as Euron notes. If I had the tongue of every man who cursed me, I could make a cloak of them. All these curses just amount to another cloak, another disguise for him to wear. The curses echo into the silence and bring nothing back with them, because God isn't listening. So Aaron tries something with more grounded physical heft. He spits in Euron's face, <laughs> the last defiance available to him. But even his spit has been tainted. It's been tinged with evening shade. <laughs> and so Euron flicks the spittle off his face with a finger and then licks the finger clean. <laughs> this is such a revealing moment, the exposure of Euron's true motivations in all this. He's an addict. What is he addicted to? Power. In any form, any way he can get it. He got an overdose of the feeling he could fly when he was a kid, and he has been chasing that high ever since. That's what all of this is about. For all his pretensions to psychedelic divine mastery, he is as much a slave to his urges as anyone else. 
Maybe more so. Look at this. He can't bear to let a drop of his drug go to waste, even when it's in the form of someone else's spit. There really is no end game for Euron, because this need for supreme power is just never going to stop. It'll go on and on and on until it consumes him along with everyone else. He hopes it will allow him to transcend humanity and become a god, and he is using Shade of the Evening to force Aaron to confront that. Your god will come tonight, or some god at least. Not the one you pray to now as an adult, the one you prayed to as a child in your room. The screaming of a western iron hinge, and that god was me. Mm, it's so creepy, and that whole scene is just like skin crawling in terms of how Euron invades the space that Aaron is in, and Aaron's attempts to resist him ends up almost sexually stimulating him. When we're talking about, too, about Euron's role in the story, I referred to him before, as, and you referred to him as well, as this kind of devil-like figure. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, there's a story where Jesus goes to fast up in the mountains above Judea for 40 nights, 40 days and 40 nights. And during that time of fasting, Satan comes to Jesus with three temptations. Make bread out of stone, jump from the top of the mountain to demonstrate your power, and worship Satan. He'll make Jesus king of the world. In The Forsaken, Satan's final temptation of Jesus comes first, as we're going to discuss in a few moments. For now, it's important to note that Euron just comes out and offers the best possible motivation, excuse me, the best possible version of the kingdom he offers without the requisite escalating temptations that Satan does to Jesus. So to set the stage for what's to come, let's look at the final temptation of Jesus in the wilderness in the context from the book of Matthew. Again, the devil took him to the very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will fall down and worship me. Away from me, Satan, Jesus declared, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This is the basis for the part of the dream sequence which Dampere is about to experience. Of course, George being George puts his own twists on Satan's temptations of Jesus in his version of the story. And so we enter Aaron's drug-influenced dreamscape, the signature aspect of the Forsaken. The part that blew everyone's minds back in 2016 and has been encouraging theories and discussions ever since. And this is just 100% my jam. This is my favorite kind of thing. And I love how George specifically does it, expertly crafting the psychedelic horror imagery while shrouding its meaning in mystery. So much goes into this, and there was so much to take away. And I think it's important to start with the shade of the evening itself, the substance that makes all this possible. It is in part inspired by LSD and psilocybin, and also in part by considerably heavier psychedelic drugs like DMT. The imagery comes from DMT, especially those involving dwarves. That's a pretty consistent report back from those who have tried the drug that there tends to be lots of dwarves in the, in the imagery associated with this drug. And being someone who has never done the drug, so to speak, I will uh, talk a little bit about how it kind of works in the context of A Song of Ice and Fire. So this also kind of works as a callback to what Danny saw in The House of the Undying all the way back in A Clash of Kings, where she saw in one room a beautiful woman sprawled naked on the floor while four little men crawled over her. They had radish pointed faces and tiny pink hands like the servitor who had brought her the glass of shade. One was pumping her thighs, another savaged her breasts, worrying at her nipples with his red, wet mouth, tearing and chewing. At the very least, Shade of the Evening's effects on the user seem similar across two point-of-view characters. And that speaks to what you're saying about what DMT does and the visions and the types of visions people, not me, dare to keep America drug-free, who use <laughs> drugs experience. 
Absolutely, I understand. But, you know, part of the thing I think we want to express in this chapter is that I think for a lot of people, the experience of being close to God and the experience of just being tripping your mind off are actually kind of similar. They come from very different places, but the end point you reach is, can, can be very, very much the same. And yeah, LSD and psilocybin, which is the, the active ingredients in, in magic mushrooms, aren't really as uh, visually driven experiences as their place in prop culture might suggest. Unless you take a nilethal amount of the stuff, you aren't actually going to see things that aren't there. What they do is enhance what's already there. A painting is going to become extra beautiful. Stationary objects will appear to be breathing, etc. However, DMT specifically is such an intense experience that it basically shuts down your body temporarily. Shade of the Evening does not work like that. You can walk around, talk, you can make an attempt to be something resembling normal, and that is more like LSD or psilocybin. And I would also argue that George is reaching back through time to the crumbling whispers of Soma, the OG psychedelic experience, a drink enjoyed by Vedic Indians. Uh, we don't know what precisely Soma is. Modern researchers have put it somewhere in between cannabis and poppy. Appropriately enough for this chapter, it is associated with religious experiences. It features in the Rig Veda, a book of Sanskrit hymns that is one of the four parts of the Vedas, a foundational collection of works for the Sanskrit language and the Hindu faith. And there is a particularly relevant passage here that has been translated a couple different ways, and I'm going to read both of those ways. We have drunk Soma and become immortal. We have attained the light the gods discovered. Now what may be Foman's malice to to harm us? What, O oh, immortal, mortal man's deception? Another way of translating it. You are elixir of life. Achieve physical strength or light of God. Achieve control over senses. In this situation, what our enemy can do to me? God, what even violent people can do to me? Drinking Soma allowed the hero Indra to defeat the storm god Vritra. Obviously, let me know if I'm pronouncing these wrong. <laughs> In some versions, uh, Indra used the foam of the ocean itself as a weapon, and you can see the link to the Forsaken there, the storm god, the foam of the ocean. Elsewhere in the Rig Veda, the power of Soma is said to let the blind see, let the lame man walk, heal the sick, clothe the naked, bring man to treasure and truth alike. This is the promise offered by both religious faith and by the psychedelic experience. And as I said, that is why those two things have always been tied together for good and ill. The fact that Shade of the Evening could be said to be the equivalent of LSD or DMT or Soma or all of the above gets at the postmodern mashup nature of the chapter as a whole you were talking about earlier. It also perfectly fits the ambiguity of what it is that Shade of the Evening does exactly. In both times it's been deployed in the text of A Song of Ice and Fire so far, The House of the Undying and A Clash of Kings and The Forsaken released from the Winds of Winter, George has left it tantalizingly unclear what's being driven by the drug and what isn't. In both cases, the lack of a control subject, a control group who's sober, prevents us from coming to a precise understanding of the drug's effects. Like if Danny wandered through The House of the Undying without sipping on the shade of the evening first, would she see nothing? Hmm. All the same things? Worse things? Better things? Who knows? And the same rule applies here in The Forsaken. It is impossible to tease out exactly what Aaron's subconscious is bringing to the table versus genuine prophetic glimpses of the future on his part. Euron's role in all of this is also ambiguous. Is he actually present in these dreams? If so, how? Via green sight taught to him by Bloodraven? Or is it by a glass candle obtained in Karth? Or both? 
None of this uncertainty undercuts the sheer power of the imagery. It just establishes how difficult it is to interpret that imagery. <laughs> and that there is the difficulty of faith. Mm-hmm. Even what you get, even when you get on what seems first glance to be a clear-cut divine image, a message from beyond, the limits of your own perspective and any tools you use to enhance it are going to leave you wondering. Just as George can only guess as to what drinking Soma is like because we don't know what it actually is, just as Aaron can only project his God outward from his own inward doubts, so we as readers can only offer incomplete interpretations of this dream in the Forsaken, and that is by design. We quoted George before on dreams in our Patreon episode on heraldry and sigils, but it bears repeating here. So George says, The best fantasy is written in the language of dreams. It is alive as dreams are alive, more real than real, for a moment at least that long magic moment before we wake. This quote, I think, is speaking to George's imagination of how fantasy interworks with dreams and the quote-unquote alive feel we receive in dreams, and how George wants to replicate that in the guise of fantasy. But when a literal dream or drug-induced nightmare, one of the two, comes up in the story, we have to pause and wonder at it. This is not an ordinary dream, as you were pointing out. It's shrouded in symbolism and mystery. And oh my God, you're in Greyjoy. might literally be in Aaron's dream. How fucking terrifying is that? At best, we can see this dream as a likely prophetic dream in some senses. And in that, we can turn back to another George quote on prophecy and how he utilizes it in the narrative. Prophecy is one of those tropes of fantasy that is fun to play with, but it can easily turn into straitjacket if you're not careful. One of the themes of my fiction since the beginning is that the characters must make their choices for good or ill, and making choices is hard. There are prophecies in my seven kingdoms, but their meanings are often murky and misleading, and they seldom offer the characters much in the way of useful guidance. So with that in mind, this and this dream in mind, readers can come away with a variety of interpretations of what George means, and they can do some do so from an honest place as well. But bear in mind that George... Much like the conversation we had about Stannis Baratheon's culpability in Renly's death is looking to be intentionally ambiguous and misleading. He said so. Go back and listen to that quote I just quoted just about a minute ago. <laughs> that, that, that ambiguity and mystery isn't meant to be resolved. It's meant to be an ongoing, permanent part of the reading experience. Mm-hmm. And with that in mind, I think the best way to think about this dream that Aaron experiences, is the first of his two, two Shade of the Evening dreams in the Forsaken, is not as an ironclad monolith with a single meaning to be uncovered, but rather the experience of George vacillating between two poles. And both poles are rooted in American culture of the 1960s and 70s, the psychedelic era of Western culture that produced George R.R. Martin. When all the insights and experiences, good and bad, to be gleaned from these substances rushed headlong into the mainstream. The first poll is the influence of Timothy Leary, a psychologist slash researcher slash activist who cottoned on to the growing use of psychedelic drugs among beat artists in the 1950s, as well as Aldous Huxley's seminal work on the subject, Doors of Perception, basically a drug diary in which he wrote about his experiences on mescaline. Huxley and many beat artists believed that these drugs could offer remarkable creative insight and encouraged spreading their use among artists and philosophers. Leary put that into practice at Harvard, disseminating the drug among students, artists ranging from uh, Ginsburg to Charles Mingus, and people suffering mental health issues. The Concord experiment was an early example of Leary's argument that these drugs could bring contentment and satisfaction more quickly and effectively than years of therapy. After Harvard fired him, citing concerns of both safety and reputation, 
Lyria became the Pied Piper for the entire psychedelic generation. The heirs to the Melon fortune set him up in a huge estate in Millbrook, New York to continue his research. At his movement's height, it styled itself a new religion, with the famous mantra of drop out, turn on, tune in. It was a significant part of the countercultural movement in the 1960s that sought to defy and industrialize the status quo driven by racism, warmongering, and greed, summarized for many people in the Vietnam War. Leary co-authored a book entitled The Psychedelic Experience, inspired in large part by the Tibetan Book of the Dead. In it, he laid out his worldview in full. Quote, A psychedelic experience is a journey to new realms of consciousness. The scope and content of the experience is limitless, but its characteristic features are the transcendence of verbal concepts, of space-time dimensions, and of the ego, or identity. Such experiences of enlarged consciousness can occur in a variety of ways. Sensory deprivation, yoga exercises, disciplined meditation, religious or aesthetic ecstasies, or spontaneously. Most recently, they have become available to anyone through the ingestion of psychedelic drugs such as LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, DMT, etc. Of course, the drug does not produce the transcendent experience. It merely acts as a chemical key. It opens the mind, frees the nervous system of its ordinary patterns and structures. And that sounds like everything we've been talking about regarding the forsaken, right? The transcendence of the word, of time and space the shredding of the self-contained ego, the links between psychedelic drugs and religious practices all over the world. And yet, here in 2020, you may have noticed that these drugs have failed to save the world and save the human soul. (laughs) So what happened? In part, what happened was that Timothy Leary was full of it. As many argued, his practices came down to worship of the self more often than not, The drugs turned his followers inward, and they delighted in their vast inner universes at the expense of doing anything about the outer universe. It's pure self-indulgence. In other words, it's just another party drug. Blank hedonism, shorn of any revolutionary ideals. As Hunter Thompson put it, they were trying for a dissolved ego, but they ended up with the exemplary ego. And of course, you can see the connection to that with Euron in this chapter and and the undying back in Karth. These drugs don't actually put you in touch with the universe. They just put you in touch with yourself. (laughs) And that is not necessarily a positive thing. These drugs have left casualties in their wake, from Sid Barrett to the Manson family. Godlike vision is inappropriate for mere mortals. It can be used negatively, every bit as much as positively. And so we arrive at the other pole of American 60s-70s culture informing this dream sequence. And that is the MKUltra program. The Church Committee in Congress, building on the journalistic efforts of Seymour Hersh, uncovered thousands of documents that laid out in painstaking detail how the CIA used psychedelic drugs as torture devices, experimenting on human beings to see if these drugs could be used for interrogation purposes. So far from challenging the foundations of imperialism and greed, these drugs ended up being put in the surface of imperialism and greed. This is all part of how the great wave of positivity and countercultural hope crashed on the bleak realities of American power. Again, my boy, Thomas Pynchon, the great chronicler of how alternatives to the status quo end up being absorbed right back into it, nailed it in his tribute to the psychedelic era, his novel Inherent Vice. Was it possible that every gathering, concert, peace rally, love in, be in, freak in, here, up north, back east, wherever, those dark crews have been busy all along? 
reclaiming the music, the resistance to power, the sexual desire from epic to everyday, all they could sweep up for the ancient forces of greed and fear. And the answer is yes. Yes, they were. And that's Euron. MK Ultra given physical form, the dark crews soaking up all the revolutionary potential of psychedelia and putting it back in service of the ancient forces of greed and fear. LSD fought the law, and the law won. So before we get into the specifics of Dampere's first freak out in The Forsaken, I think that's the context in which we should see it. This is George looking back with a sad, jaundiced eye at how Timothy Leary became MK Ultra, just like how Uragon gives way to Euron. Underneath the friendly mask of your long-departed brother awaits the devil, awaits the CIA and the Dulles brothers, awaits the Cold War and the black backlash to the civil rights movement. Woodstock to Altamont, Bob Dylan to Charles Manson. The revolution failed. Worse than failed, it was co-opted, hijacked, and sold back to us as a brand. We are forsaken. <laughs> and once more, I think of Inherent Vice, the most legendary passage from that book, the passage a lot of people like to quote, the passage I'm so glad ended up in the movie adaptation. Yet there is no avoiding time, the sea of time, the sea of memory and forgetfulness, the years of promise gone and unrecoverable, of the land almost allowed to claim its better destiny, only to have the claim jumped by evildoers known all too well, and taken instead and held hostage to the future we must live in now forever. May we trust that this blessed ship is bound for some better shore, some undrowned Lemuria, risen and redeemed, where the American fate mercifully failed to transpire. America is nowhere in A Song of Ice and Fire. There is no direct equivalent to it. Yet from another angle, it's everywhere. Just as Danny nuking a city in the show and maybe in the books can be seen as a commentary on America nuking Japanese cities, the American present in which George wrote The Forsaken is bereft of both the divine timelessness Augustine achieved in prayer and also the chemically induced sublimity promised by Timothy Leary at all. Just as Tales of the Black Freighter from our beloved Watchmen <laughs> comments on Ozymandias' mass murder under the kitschy pirate surface, so does The Forsaken offer a grim people's psychedelic history of the United States under its own kitschy pirate surface. This is who we tried to be, and this is how it all came apart. Mm, drugs are bad, okay. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I joke. I mean, that's all wonderfully said. I think it's it's brilliantly put. I think um, it's a vantage point into a world that I'm not familiar with, as you listeners to the show have probably know at this point i've never actually done drugs so i like, got a contact high one time uh separate story altogether um <laughs> but like i mean you know <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Know, n- name a thing you've enjoyed in pop culture in the last 55 years like you've seen alan moore who wrote sure. watchmen you don't think that guy's sober so no. even even if you've never taken these ex- drugs yourself even if you never intend to that's fine you have encountered art that is impossible to imagine without it you have taken part in this pop culture rise and fall and, and, you know, the thing that I relate it to in my own life experience is religious experience because I mm-hmm. have been around certain religious experiences where people speak in tongues, where people, and I don't believe in speaking in tongues necessarily or anything like that, but I've been around people that have been like caught up in the spirit and they go into this kind of trance-like state mm-hmm. and they're s- engaging in the world in ways that I 
just simply don't understand as a mostly rational human being. My wife would disagree with that assessment. That's okay. <laughs> I find that the drug, the drug experience that George is that we're going to unpack here in just a few moments, very relatable to the way that religious experience can sometimes feel, or even in the way that music can sometimes feel to people. Mm -hmm. People just are carried away by music. And in some senses, it's great, I'm, I'm assuming, to be carried away by religious experience, to be carried away by music, or to even be like, I mean, it sounds like shitty, but I mean, like be swept up in, in a book and by literature and by something that's really kind of like compelling you deep down inside or by writing. I mean, I'm sure you've gone into like a, a writing frenzy in your book. I've done it for mine where yeah. you just feel like you're on a separate level than you are normally yeah. at. And it's glorious. It's one of the best feelings in the world is to have that mm -hmm. feeling of, of movement and of purpose and but sometimes it can twist and turn on you, right? And mm -hmm. I think like we see that, I see that in religious experiences all the time, especially in some of those types of Christian communities which do speak in tongues, which do rely on prophecy and how you can twist that and just slowly just kind of twist it around until it doesn't resemble the re massive, wonderful religious experience that you had before. It's sad, it's ugly, it's broken. And that makes it really, comparable to me for this what happens in this chapter this chapter feels like the start of a good trip if i can use your terminology not your terminology i'm kidding but in, <laughs> in terms of the, the terminology that george is as i'm very obviously borrowing from and turns into a very bad trip because it starts okay and then it goes real bad real quick it turns on a dime it turns like teeth to quote uh, under the silver like a recent movie that i think captures a, a lot of the kind of things we're talking about here uh, if you haven't checked that out folks you should definitely check it out i love that movie anyway Aaron sags into his chains as he sleeps, and his dream opens on a vision of life within death, death within life. His beloved brother Aragon returns to him as a ghost, like Hamlet's father, like Jacob Marley in A Christmas Carol. Marley, too, wears chains, and so did Augustine, as he puts it. I was grown deaf by the clinking of the chain of my mortality. To go with the rattling of the chains, we have the scream of the hinge, the rusted hinge, as Aaron's beliefs have all gone to rust, creaking open, letting the crow's eye back in. This is not a literal bedroom anymore, but a room inside Aaron's head, and once more he shares it with Uri. He tells himself that it's not real, but that doesn't help one bit. <laughs> Aragon asks Aaron if he knows what's waiting below the sea, beyond the grave, and Aaron responds with what he's been told. Valhalla awaits. The drowned god awaits. A palace of comforts await, which will make up for all the suffering we endure on Earth. But he's wrong. Uri tells him so. Worms. Worms await you, Aaron. There is only death. Faith is a lie to distract you from that fact. This dry and dismal veil, as Aaron calls it, it's all there is. It becomes much more powerful when you consider that this is Aaron's subconscious fear that his newfound, relatively speaking, faith is a lie. That the drowned god doesn't have a hall waiting for Aaron in his watery halls. This is a familiar fear for me. Every religious person, me especially, mm -hmm. fears the question, what if I'm wrong? What if there's nothing beyond our present darkness and suffering? What if there is a finite end with no afterwards, no infinity beyond? From the Watchmen director's cut version of the Tales from the Black Freighter, Ridley says in quotation marks, Heaven? Oh, there is no heaven, Captain. Believe me, sir, I would know by now. 
Of course, Ridley is dead by this point, and this is the captain's subconsciousness fucking with him in his delirious state. Does this sound familiar? It probably mm-hmm. should. <laughs> the point isn't that George is becoming Richard Dawkins in this part of the chapter. The point is that George is zeroing in on the psychological makeup of Aaron Greyjoy. Aaron is scared shitless as well as any religious person should be by the very idea that death is at the end of everything and there's no afterwards. On a physical level, Dampere knows that worms will eat his physical body. He has to know that at some level, but he hopes that his soul be transported to the ironborn version of heaven. The problem is that his faith was not born of genuine conversion, as you've been alluding to. That, to me, is the crushing first half of this chapter, the point of it. Dampere, despite resembling the fire and brimstone preachers you might have grown up hearing, as I grew up hearing in some venues, is not a true believer. Instead, he has Yuri, Euron, himself, speaking to what he truly believes in. The end is worms, eating the remnants of your body. There is no God. There is no heaven. Aaron's worldview collapsed on a cultural and political level at the king's moot. Now it is collapsing on a spiritual and metaphysical level. And those two failures are linked. Man fails to bring about the kingdom of heaven because there's no such thing. And back we go to T.S. Eliot and his four quartets. He, he writes, We cannot revive old factions. We cannot restore old policies or follow an antique drum. These men and those who opposed them and those whom they opposed accept the constitution of, wait for it, silence and are folded in a single party. Whatever we inherit from the fortunate, we have taken from the defeated. What they had to leave us, a symbol a symbol perfected in death. I mean, that's literally the king's moot and its aftermath, right? <laughs> the old factions, the old policies, the antique drum, drum with two M's in the case of the Ironborn, all these counterfactional oppositions, they gave way to silence. Euron's silence, the ship, and were folded into a single party, following him, the feasting crow, the symbol of death. Elliot continues with another passage that Elliot continues with another passage that defines where Aaron is now. We die with the dying. See, they depart, and we go with them. We are born with the dead. See, they return and bring us with them. The dead have returned to bring Aaron with them. What is dead may never die. And they are bringing him not to paradise, but to the eternal void. The throne of light sits empty. Enter Euron. For this figure in Aaron's dream wasn't Uragon after all. It was Euron. Uri's face collapses and and Euron emerges from behind it. One more disguise. To put it in Bloodraven's terms, as he says to Bran in A Dance with Dragons, the brother I loved was the brother I hated. All along, they were the same person. The disguise falls. The gossamer veil parts. Here is Euron. The true Euron. Euron as he exists in the mind of George R.R. R. Martin. And it is terrifying and awesome in both senses <laughs> of the word. The imagery explodes into the reader's eyes along with Aaron's. Part anime freakout, part heavy metal album cover. We have suddenly entered the Black Lodge from Twin Peaks. <laughs> we have climbed Ale- Alejandro Jodorowsky's psychedelic holy mountain. Euron is wearing black armor now, and he is sitting atop a pile of skulls. All of humanity is rendered as dwarfs capering before him. 
If I have one critique of the Forsaken, it is that George is indulging in the weird imagery equals dwarves idea, which Peter Dinklage, among others, have criticized. As Peter Dinklage has pointed out, whenever someone, an author or someone making a movie or TV show, wants to show things being weird or being dreamy, oh, throw some dwarves in there. That means weird. (laughs) But again, that is rooted in real experiences with DMT. People who have taken this drug have reported back, yeah, I saw dwarves. And I think here it is trying to communicate that Euron thinks of no one else on the same level as him. Back in the House of the Undying, the dwarves were the other kings, so they have no power compared to Euron, the true king in his mind, and in Aaron's mind, potentially as well. Now, I don't know how long it's been since George used psychedelic drugs, but he perfectly captures the ramp up in this scene, in which it feels like your brain is going over the first huge hill of a roller coaster. The very instruments by which you perceive the world have been altered. Behind Euron, a forest burns. This could speak to his general destructive habits. He is a termite along the tree of life, the forest of life, his relentless gnawing threatening to bring the whole thing crashing down. But in universe, it also speaks specifically to the weirwoods and how every wave from the east attacks the faith of the old gods, lest it challenge them. Euron is perhaps named for Eurus, the wind from the east, and discovered Shade of the Evening in his travels to the east. So too did he become obsessed with Valyria, and this imagery we see in this dream very much reminds me of the doom of Valyria. Mm. The Weirwood connection, however, once more speaks to the hidden connections to the north under the surface of the connections to the east. In his own MK Ultra experiments, Bloodraven cracked open Euron's third eye, and now that bad seed is coming home to roost. Euron will potentially burn the forest, burn the weirwoods, burn the gods to attain power. That's really well said. And uh, the Dream Dictionary has it that dreams of a burnt forest indicates that transformation and regeneration is only possible after you have suffered through some dreary consequences. Hmm. Again, sound familiar? You can practically see Barton kind of stroking his beard after reading that and going, but what if the transformation led to regeneration after dreary consequences? I'm also reminded of the image in my brain of Drogo's Kalasar riding from the Lazarine town with it burning behind them and the kind of the imagery that Danny has too when she's in the tent. She has the same sort of imagery about Rago as well. It speaks to this the idea of the destruction of the civilis, the civilization, order and life snuffed out in a fiery inferno. But I really, really love the idea you're putting together of the trees being werewoods and it's Euron's rebellion against his first god, namely Bloodraven. To go one step further, as we know, the werewoods capture living memories and are able to transmit them to, to the person who accesses the memories next, gets inside the roots itself. Burning down the werewood forest, then, is Euron doing what Roose Bolton did with the book at Harrenhal, burning it down. And the people have always asked the question of why Roose Bolton actually did that. And George Robert actually did answer this in 2001, in which he said, Roose had absorbed the information and information is a form of power. Had he left the book intact, an enemy might somehow come to possess it and with it the info therein. By destroying the book, he guaranteed that the information would not fall into the hands of an enemy. So basically, burning the book was not an absolute symbol of Roos' desertion from the north. No identification of the book. His answer was simply, Roos had read it. Why leave it lying around where an enemy might read it, might read it too? Euron Greyjoy has taken all the knowledge he could possibly suck out of Bloodraven if Euron was indeed Bloodraven's people, as you've theorized, and I completely agree with. And now he's lighting a torch, a match, and tossing it onto the pathway to get where he's got. Why let anyone achieve the godhood that Euron has done so much to attain? 
Exactly right. He's climbed his way up to this treehouse. Now he's pulling up the ladder behind him, just like Bruce Bolton. He doesn't want anywhere up there, anyone else up there with him. But the most significant aspect of Euron's personal appearance in this dream is his eyes. The smiling eye, that blue, that sky blue eye with which he seduces his followers, convincing them he has their best interests in mind, is closed. The eye patch has fallen, and the crow's eye is open at last. The crow's eye is usually described as black by, in both Feast for Crows and by Theon in his uh, release chapter from the Winds of Winter. But here, Aaron calls it his blood eye, which would seem to associate it with red. He still describes it, however, as dark and terrible. Black blood is a consistent motif in the Song of Ice and Fire, speaking to disease and corruption and zombification, especially regarding Gregor Clegane. Melisandre, in A Dance with Dragons, sees a vision of a black and bloody tide, which almost certainly refers to Euron's unholy rise as the new god. Moreover, this combination of blood and, and black imagery brings us back around to red and black, the colors of House Targaryen, and the notion of Euron as the true hidden heir to Valyria and its doom. This is who Euron truly is, beneath the pirate costume. This is what his freezer-burnt soul really looks like. And this is what he really sounds like. The bleeding star bespoke the end. <laughs> These are the last days when the world shall be broken and remade. A new god shall be born from the graves and charnel pits. In the safety of his brother's dreams, no one else is watching, Euron can lay out what his agenda has been all along. Apotheosis. Climbing the fiery ladder to the very top, becoming a god. The red comet in his mind was a bleeding star, and now all the world is captured in his infernal blood eye, the god's eye. It will all end, and it will all be remade by Euron, the god of the graveyard. Hmm. And back to the Bible, because that's been basically this has been the uh, the Bible podcast, not a cast podcast. The star in the east, which lights the way for the Magi to find the Messiah that we see in the book of Matthew, I believe. Euron is here thinking that he's Jesus, thinking that the red comet was his comet. Do you remember all those characters back in A Clash of Kings who were saying, ah, they look up to the sky and see the red comet and think, this stands for the Lancer victory. This is Tully victory. And Brendan Blackfish says, oh, child, that is blood up there. Euron looks up and also sees the blood. And he thinks that's my comet. And he might be right about that. It was his signal to his imminent rise to godhood. So it's interesting that Euron gets his first two canonical mentions at the start of A Clash of Kings in Theon's first two chapters as the comet flies overhead of Westeros. And then Euron gets another mention, likely mention, in the form of Eurathon, Nightwalker, and Karth, connecting him to Daenerys, Shade of the Evening, the Warlocks, etc. Again, more on that in part three. Absolutely. Can't wait for that. But sticking within Aaron's dream for the moment, following the uh, discontinuous jump cut pattern of dreams, Euron suddenly has a giant horn, which he blows. Dragons and krakens and sphinxes all suddenly appear and kneel to him. And as is the case throughout this chapter, there are both literal and figurative meanings at work here. Euron does literally want dragons. And there are literal krakens rising to the surface of the ocean in response to his mass bloodletting. Varys hints at that in the Storm of Swords, and we hear more of that from the Tolans in one of Arion's released chapters from the Winds of Winter. 
On the other hand, at a more figurative level, the dragon could also stand in for Daenerys, who Euron is also pursuing, or Valyrian power slash technology slash culture, and the kraken could stand in for the old way ironborn that Euron has so effectively hijacked, taken away from Aeron. The Sphinx does not literally appear to exist in the world of ice and fire, but there are Sphinx statues outside the Citadel in Old Town, the font of learning that Euron seems destined to burn down a la the Library of Alexandria. He is setting himself up as the anti-Alexander. Back we go to Watchmen. <laughs> Euron is like a version of Ozymandias who does not have the pretension that he is a hero. He is he's unapologetically <laughs> aware of the horror he is committing and he is into it. Mm-hmm. Moreover, in the real world, the Sphinx stands in for riddles and enigmas, which certainly define Euron. He is making uncertainty itself, the void, the silence, kneel before him. He is the answer to all these unanswerable questions. The Sphinx in Egyptian history is often framed as half-man and half-lion, specifically, joining the strength of the animal kingdom to the cunning of a king among men. They are seen as gateways between mortality and immortality, perfect for a man who would be a god. That horn that Euron is blowing should immediately make us think of Dragonbinder, blown in Euron's honor at the king's moot. It does bring another horn to mind as well, but uh, (laughs) more on that to come in a later episode. Broadly speaking, horns are often used as signals of apocalypse, apotheosis, destruction of the old world so God can build anew, and of death in general. In many traditions, many stories, a horn, the hunting horn of death, is the last sound you hear. (laughs) Now, what does all of this have to do with our POV, Aaron Greyjoy? Euron tells him to kneel before his new king, before his new god, kneel before all of this insane imagery. You will be my priest instead. You will love Big Brother. (laughs) And this fits Euron's overall worldview. Nothing matters except that which serves his power. And in his mind, that's how gods operate. God is not love. God is power. Back to T.S. Eliot and his four quartets. You are not here to verify, instruct yourself, or inform curiosity or carry report. You are here to kneel. And Aaron refuses. This takes immense courage on his part. Imagine being trapped in your own mind as well as your body, forced to behold unimaginable horrors by the brother who tortured you throughout your childhood. I would definitely bend the knee at this point. (laughs) But even though Aaron's faith, as we've been saying, is this corrupted, blind, selfish thing with nothing to back it up, it sustains him in this moment. His mantra gives him strength. No godless man may sit the sea stone chair. As I said regarding Catelyn and the Sept near Storm's End in the main cast, the power of faith rests not in the objective existence of the gods, but the subjective strength that you take away from it. And that strength is something that I love about it because Aaron's refusal works as groundwork for the emotional payoff at the end of this chapter of Aaron calling Falia to be brave in the midst of certain death. His dreams, his subconscious still speaks to a will to resist shit-spanning horror and terror, and that's really brave. People don't just wake up in the morning and decide to become brave. They build the internal fortitude to get there before they conduct a brave act. At least that's been my experience. And that's what's at work here. Aaron forging the steel inside his subconsciousness dream. 
Aaron forging the steel inside of his subconscious dreams is going to carry him through the physical horror that he will experience at the end of this chapter. So the metaphorical in your brain sort of stuff that Aaron is currently experiencing sets the foundation for what is going to occur physically at the end of this chapter tied to the prowl of the silence. Exactly. Those those uh, physical and metaphysical planes, the literal and the figurative, all are tied together. Euron, however, is playing a different ball game from Aaron entirely. He is not in this for the Seastone chair at all. Like Aaron, he is almost certainly never going back to the Iron Islands. The throne, which is the font of meaning for Aaron, the sacred source of political and religious strength, the Seastone chair. It's just another rock for Euron. Another worthless material possession compared to his third eye. Look again, brother, and see where I am seated. The dreamscape ripples and changes again, shifting shape and meaning, just like Euron does wherever he goes. Now the crow's eye sits atop the Iron Throne. Yet once more we are dealing with the dance between the literal and the figurative. Does Euron want to be king of Westeros, atop the Iron Throne? Well, yes and no. (laughs) Not in the sense that, say, the Baratheon brothers think about it. What Euron wants is total, all-consuming power over the life and death of every creature that runs or crawls or swims across the surface of the earth. A gigantic spiky throne forged in dragonfire and fed on blood is merely a convenient stand-in for that desire. The throne for Euron is not first and foremost a chair. It is first and foremost a ladder, the ladder of chaos described by Littlefinger in the show. But for Littlefinger, what's waiting at the top is rags and rocks, the dust-covered baubles of mortal power. For Euron, what's waiting at the top is Godhead, Heaven, Olympus, the Big Bang, Brahman, the ultimate source of reality in the Hindu faith, the unity behind the diversity of reality. And for Euron, as for the faceless men, That unity is defined by death. Worms await us all, including the gods themselves. Like a version of Prometheus, uninterested in benefiting humanity but only himself, Euron has cast down the gods. In Euron's vision, they are impaled on the Iron Throne, on the source of his power. Every one of them, not merely the gods of Westeros, but all the gods of the world of ice and fire. Euron's postmodern magpie M.O., the way in which he is warlock and green seer and pirate and Valyrian death cultist reaches its apex of expression here. He is not grinding any one particular axe. He is not serving any one particular god. As he says, he serves 10,000. He has attacked and dethroned god, literally. <laughs> As he said in his introductory scene in A Feast for Crows, he has realized the link among all these gods. None of them are listening, all of them are silent. Therefore, he can and will replace them. And above all, he has killed the drowned god. The projected savior in Aaron's mind, the voice that fills the silence, reassuring him he is not the weak man Euron made of him. He's dead. God is dead. Man has killed him, and now man will become god. Well, I always appreciate a little Nietzsche in my, uh, as it's 11.22 at night here as we record this episode. So uh, it's always good to, to kind of get that uh, kind of reference there. And I think like too, in, in terms of what, what Nietzsche is talking about, about God being dead and man has killed him, it's, he's not just speaking as a triumphant statement here. And, and that's in from, I think it's, that's from Thus, Thus Broke Theresthusha, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So he's not like speaking like a triumphantly like, ah, oh, yes, God is finally dead. That's awesome. That's great. It's kind of a sad moment for for Nietzsche or the or the insane man that he's he's portraying in, in the, that version of the story. Very true. Very true. And I think for Euron, it's the exact opposite. It's God is dead and we've killed him. And holy shit, that's fucking great. That's mm-hmm. awesome. So metal, bro. And I think like that also speaks to something that we see inherent in Christianity, which is this idea of the fall, of being like God, of knowing good and evil. But it goes beyond that for Euron. It's not just knowing good and evil. It's setting good and evil up. It is defining a new set of morality and in a, in a huge sense, inverting what is actually good and righteous and making it something that is not good and not righteous that is quite evil as we're going to as we've already discovered, as we're going to find, it gets becomes increasingly more evil as the, as the time goes on. And that all stems back to what happened after the King's Moot, because one of the great questions that we had about before the Forsaken was released was what actually happened to Aaron Dampere? Many people thought that he was back on the Iron Islands, saving the people, rallying the small folk to rise up against Euron Greyjoy. No, he was not, not so much on the Iron Islands, not so much at all. We've been talking so much about the personal aspects of the Aaron-Euron relationship in this chapter, but now George steps back to put a, put this back into context. With both Aaron's mind and the reader's mind thoroughly blown, George wants to remind us of the storyline's foundation. How did we get here? How did this happen? Aaron's deprivation leaves him unstuck in time, shifting from hallucinations of the future to memories of the recent past, the wake of Euron's victory at the King's Moon where we last saw him. Aaron urged Victarion to rise against Euron, but as Victarion pointed out, it was Aaron's own holy king's moot that crowned Euron. So maybe the old way isn't what he thought he was. <laughs> but no, no, Aaron can't possibly confront that. He simply scorns men as drunken fools. We are sinners, hopelessly lost, chasing each other down the stairway to hell, and we encourage each other. We make each other's sin possible. Again, we come back to Augustine and his confessions as he describes it. I committed fornication against thee. And all around me, thus fornicating, there echoed, Well done, well done! For the friendship of this world is fornication against thee. And well done, well done! Echoes on till one is ashamed not to be thus a man. More blood, more blood, they cry in the tales of the black freighter in Watchmen. This is what the world encourages from you. Aaron used to be part of that debauched crowd of sinners and hadn't wanted to face that uh, that's life as usual on the Iron Islands. Very few are so devoted to the god as Dampere. So in the wake of the king's moot, in the wake of the proof of that, Aaron gives himself over to his god, walking back into the ocean and letting the waves wash over him, numbing him to pain as he waits for divine instruction. He says in this part of the chapter that the taste of salt water is sweeter than any wine. But earlier in the chapter, later in chronology, we have already seen Euron tell him that the warlock's wine is sweeter than salt water. So once more we get the sense from the Forsaken that time is illusory, that we keep going back and forth, just like Augustine described the feeling of prayer, this access to the timelessness of God. For Augustine, that was a positive thing. For Aaron, not so much. <laughs> Aaron hears the voice of his god swell up from beneath the waves. This is nirvana. This is enlightenment. This is what every lost soul is trying to attain, and it's a complete delusion. Dampere is trying to cut himself off from all sensory inputs in order to more purely access God. 
as religious folks the world over have done in so many traditions, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in debauchery and wantonness, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as for the flesh, take no thought for its lusts. But in truth, Aaron is just being left alone with himself. There is no getting away from the mind. As the Buddha teaches, we are our thoughts. We make the world with our thoughts. And Aaron's thoughts are grounded in the old way. <laughs> the political and cultural worldview that Aaron has just effortlessly hijacked for his own purposes at the king's mood. Aaron cannot reckon with this failure. Like many devout people, he has an eagle eye for the failures of individual men, but a blind spot for the institutional failures of his faith. If Euron didn't take advantage of the failure of the old way and the faith of the drowned god, someone else would have, because there is no voice beneath the wave. Only Aaron's and Balon's and Victorian's, and they have <laughs> failed to bring their words to pass in this mortal veil. And still, Aaron Damphair is not truly converted, just speaks over and over, says what the narrative is saying, is that Aaron is there thinking that he's speaking, that the god is speaking directly to him, and yet it can't answer the question of who is actually going to be the one who's going to succeed Balin Greyjoy, who is the one who's going to tear down Euron. He thinks he has answers in A Feast for Crows. He thinks he has answers as he thinks back to this chapter in The Winds of Winter. But the answer is the silence of the god, the silence of his god, of the drowned god. It's so sad and so terrifying that he can't deal with it. So Aaron invents a drowned god that will tell him he's right. A voice to counter the silence, certainty to end his doubts. But the voice can offer him no certainty. Why? Because it's his own voice. When we say, as we've said before, that Aaron has mistaken his own inner monologue for the voice of God, I think this scene more than any other is what we're talking about. The God declares that the crow's eye is unworthy, that the damp hair is his true servant, and that therefore the sea stone chair will go to... to... <laughs> See? There is no divine answer. As Catalan discovered in the Sept near Storm's End, there is only us. There was only ever us. Aaron falls back on his own preconceptions, his own fears and desires. Not Victorian, the voice says. Why? Because Aaron is disappointed in Victorian. Because Victorian failed to rise up against Euron. That's why Aaron's upset. That has nothing to do with the word of the drowned god. Not Asha, the voice says. Why? Because even though Aaron always loved her best of Balon's children, oh, the Ironborn will never accept a woman as a leader. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with the word of God. <laughs> what if God decides we will have a woman leader now? Wouldn't that be your job to listen to him? Mm -hmm. This is the hard limit to Aaron's faith. He's not really a prophet, despite the chapter title in A Feast for Crows saying so. Prophets are supposed to bring about change. Prophets are supposed to challenge assumptions, prejudices, the status quo. Prophets bring about new truths. Aaron is forever limited by his understanding of the truth as an iron constant, the old way. This is precisely what made his faction politically vulnerable to Euron's return. Euron, again, is a shapeshifter, a deconstructor who kills the old truths. His new truth is himself, full stop. Hmm. Aaron never even considers the truth that George might be hinting at here. Theon is the one with the power to bring down Euron, thanks to the Torgon Latecomer precedent that comes up in Feast and Dance. That truth is defined by its absence here. 
that which could save them all, never even enters Aaron's mind. He can only fall back on the old way, or rather his hypocritical understanding of it. And the reader is left going, oh, dude, you almost got it. So close. So, so close. close. But it gets back to, remember when we did our episodes on, on A Clash Kings Theon 1 and 3, specifically how Aaron Dampier looks at Theon is like, this guy sucks. He's not even Ironborn. He's just some sort of Greenlander. At least Asha, as much as, you know, she's a woman and, you know, we can't have a <laughs> person with woman parts in charge. That sounds terrible. Mm-hmm. At least she was, like, really Ironborn. She's the one I loved best because, of course, Balin, was, Balin loved her best as well. Mm-hmm. Theon, though, is just a fucking Stark at this point. He's more wolf than, than Kraken and will never actually attain the status. So that's why the Drowned God is silent when it comes to the status of Theon Greyjoy. When really, that's the solution right there that, as you were saying, is that Aaron is so close to getting to, but he can't quite make it to that final step simply because it's his own voice talking inside and his own voice and his own subconscious has practically, if not completely, forgotten about his nephew, Theon Greyjoy. He's put it all out of his mind, even though we as the reader know, hey, there's a Greyjoy you're forgetting. Who are you leaving (laughs) out there? But he can't think of it. So right after scorning both Asha and Victorian in isolation... Aaron decides that the best move is to combine the two, and this perfectly sums up the limits of his perspective. If I smoosh these two failures together, (laughs) somehow that will be a success. Too late, buddy. The time for that was before the king's boat. Moreover, Aaron declares that, ah, this Asha-Victarian alliance that I've made up in my brain will be the true return of the old way, establishing as it would a rock king and a salt king like we used to have. But wait, Aaron... If that's the true articulation of the old way, why wasn't this your plan from the beginning? Why were you behind Victarian and only a Victarian at first? Aaron keeps changing his mind while pretending that's not what he's doing. Pretending this political shell game constitutes the consistent word of a living immortal god. It is a transparent self-delusion. And this is precisely the weakness of Aaron's faith that Euron takes advantage of again and again. Because there's nothing behind the curtain, he can be. Because the old way only feigns constancy, Euron can easily remake it in his own image. It was only ever a pirate costume. It was only ever an eye patch. It was only ever a voice in Euron's head, and none of this can protect him from the return of his abuser. So he returns to shore, determined, as he says, to bring Euron down with the power of his faith. But then George makes absolutely clear to the reader how Aaron has been forsaken. What brings him down? His hair. His long hair, his damp hair that makes him who he is, grown in the image of seaweed, uncut to reflect the victories of God, like God is a Dothraki cowl. The emblem of his faith, the new name, damp hair, he took to reflect being reborn from the weak man Euron left behind. That hair literally blinds him. And in that moment, as it's covering his eyes, that's what allows Euron's servants to take him. And those servants, of course, are mutes. They don't have the word. They pray to their god Euron in their actions, for words are wind, including those of Aaron's imaginary god. Back we come to Augustine in a moment of doubt. I, poor wretch, foamed like a troubled sea, following the rushing of my own tide, forsaking thee, and exceeded all thy limits, yet I escaped not thy scourges. For what mortal can? Aaron wakes in the dungeon, and now he understands what deprivation really is. 
Everything is taken away so he might truly confront the face of God. And isn't that part of religious experiences? Isn't that part of the journey to God per St. John of the Cross? To reach satisfaction in all, desire its possession nothing. To come to possession in all, desire the possession of nothing. To arrive at being all, desire to be nothing. To come to the knowledge of all, desire the knowledge of nothing. To, to come to the pleasure you have not, you must go by the way which you enjoy not. To come to the knowledge you have not, you must go by the way in which you know not. To come to the possession you have not, you must go by the way in which you possess not. To come by what you are not, you must go by a way in which you are not. <laughs> when you turn towards something, you cease to cast yourself upon the all. For to go from the all to the all, you must deny yourself of all in all. And when you come to the possession of all, you must possess it without wanting anything. Because if you desire to have something in all, your treasure in God is not purely your all. And these words come from St. John's attempts to explain his own poem, Dark Night of the Soul, exploring the state of profound religious doubt into which Aaron has now been plunged. And St. John's work was hugely influential on Eliot's quartets that I've been uh, quoting this whole time. And you can see the connection between Dark Night of the Soul and what George R. R. Martin calls The Long Night. So here I think we have arrived at what George is driving at. Aaron has never truly experienced this metaphorical long night, this nuclear winter inside. And now he has. But unlike Augustine, unlike St. John, he does not find the creator waiting for him. He finds an empty throne being filled by a new god. And that new god was his own abuser, and that's just the heartbreaking aspect that Aaron has to, and is realizing here, chained to this, the walls of the silence, chained to the dungeon underneath of uh, Lord Hewitt's castle at Oakenshield. This is really tough on, on any character, but it's especially tough on Aaron Greyjoy. And this is part of what George does really, really well in writing A Song of Ice and Fire, and that he tends to drive characters to the point where they have a make or break sort of situation. I think of things like Ned Stark being driven by his desire to save the children, as well as having the honor of needing to tell Robert the truth and trying to determine a way that he can get around that. And he comes up with a solution, which doesn't really work for him, sadly. I think of also of characters like Daenerys Targaryen, who is being forced to pursue peace and being forced to also have this desire to wreck the shit out of the slavers in Slaver's Bay. She has multiple, she has multiple things that are in conflict with, with each other. And George drives the narrative to her having, having this moment of breaking, of flying away from it all, of not engaging with this particular problem for the time being. We'll likely engage with it down the road. For Aaron Greyjoy, he is in a moment of crisis of faith. He is in the place where he has been stripped of his prior delusions about his own religious journey and his own religious faith. And he has been left with this idea that there is no God but the brother that abused me, that sexually abused and likely raped me as, as a child, him being the God that I have to look up to. And yet, as we were saying before, he is still brave in his subconscious in the face of that. But when he wakes up, he finds that Euron is not, Euron slash Yuri are not there, but there is someone who is connected to Euron there. Exactly. Into this, into this eschatological stew of doubt, deprivation, and deicide, George drops an innocent who believes in the stories and songs. 
The young fantasy reader, everybody, Folly of Flowers. We met her in a feast for crows on Oakenshield in the Reaver. Euron and his Reavers had taken her father's castle. Yet Folly does not suffer for it, at least initially. She sits on Euron's lap and laughs her way through dinner. She has become his lover. Meanwhile, her father is tied to his chair with a turnip stuck in his mouth. Euron mutes everyone in one way or another. Her half-sisters are forced to serve at table. I say half-sisters because Falia, as you can tell by her last name, is Lord Hewitt's bastard daughter, and she was treated like a servant by Lord Hewitt's wife and true-born daughters as punishment for existing. Clearly, George is riffing hard on Cinderella here, with Euron as a combination fairy godmother and Prince Charming, on the surface anyway. No wonder Falia treated Euron like a savior. Once more, George is showing us how Euron only succeeds, only gains support despite his blatant supervillainy, because the systems he is infesting and hijacking were rotten to begin with. So many were already forsaken. That's why they welcome him. And I, I kind of wonder, and, and you can come back as you are more familiar with this, this subject <laughs> than me, is this a criticism of how like revolutionary movements consume their own, mm-hmm. especially if the revolution is perpetuated by those who are not truly concerned with revolutionary aims. You can feel how George is subverting the catharsis of seeing the noble class of Westeros kind of getting its own, right? They're getting the knife stuck in them, and it should feel cathartic to us, right? But it doesn't. Recall again the line from the Reaver chapter from Victarion. There were eight of them, and he's referring to the eight women who are some way connected to Lord Hewitt. Her ladyship herself, still handsome though grown somewhat stout, and seven younger women aged from 25 to 10, her daughters and good daughters. Now, no one should be subjected to ritualized sexual humiliation, but there's an especial gut punch in a 10-year-old being forced into it. That's the context that this upcoming scene and what Folly is talking about should be viewed in. It feels sometimes cathartic when the nobles kind of get their own. It doesn't feel that way when it's children. I know that Folly is going to talk a little bit about what happens, what happened to her and what her sisters, older half-sisters did to her. But I'm not sure that necessarily justifies what happens to her, what happens to them in response, especially to her 10-year-old sister. Agreed, and yet Falia delights in this inversion of power. She suggests that her half-sisters be forced to serve naked, so as to preserve their nice clothes which Euron has promised her. So by innocent, I don't mean good or kind so much as naive. Falia honestly doesn't seem to recognize the horror of what's happening around her. She talks to Aaron in this scene in The Forsaken as though he's not in chains, as though he's not being tormented by her new lover, Euron. And I know this, I know this strikes some readers as unrealistic, I've heard that said before, but every day the real world provides us examples of people who engage in individual acts of mercy while ignoring the larger systems of exploitation and punishment that makes those acts of mercy necessary in the first place. Is folly so different from you or I handing a couple of dollars to a homeless person in passing without stopping to deal with how they got into that position in the first place? We don't know what Euron told Falia about Aaron. For all Falia knows, Aaron deserves this for rising against his beloved brother who lifted her up and gave her nice things. <laughs> Falia feels about Euron like Davos feels about Stannis. <laughs> Moreover, when Falia first steps into the dungeon... Aaron acts like he's still the damp hair, still the imperious voice of God. In other words, he acts like an asshole. Woman, I am a man of God. I command you, set me free. 
Do as I say, because I have divine force to my words. Again, is this really so different from how Euron sees the world? Euron has just taken the ideology of the old way to its full extent. Aaron, blinded as he was previously by his hair, cannot seem to see this. So Folly's naivete mirrors Aaron's own. He ignored the atrocities and delusions that animated the old way because the old way made him feel safe from Euron. Falia ignores the atrocities and delusions that animate Euron because he made her feel safe from the true-born members of our family. We all make our deals with the devil, but eventually the bill comes due. Eventually the bill tolls for you. Eventually the techniques the emperor uses to keep the conquered peoples in line will be used to keep his own chosen ones in line. Eventually power turns on you. Euron loves no one. Aaron knows that, and he tries to warn Falia in one of the most chilling lines in a chapter hardly lacking for them. Woman, run. He will hurt you. He will kill you. There is no seducing Euron. There is no convincing him to treat you differently, the special one who won't face the chains. All you can do is run. It reminds me of a description of Bob, the nightmarish spirit that haunts the world of Twin Peaks. He is Bob, eager for fun, wearing a smile. Everybody run. Only in this state of humility and deprivation does Aaron finally stop acting like a vessel for divine judgment and punishment and start talking to another person like they're a person, like him, a flawed, scared, struggling mortal facing down the silence of the void. Only now does he reach outside himself and try to save someone else. Only now does he act as a true prophet, as a true minister should, trying to heal and protect someone else. There's kind of like a Theon to Jane Poole feel to this part of the chapter. Mm -hmm. With the caveat that Jane Poole was not reveling in being Ramsay's salt <laughs> wife and no sense of the and manner of the word. True. But the similar dynamic of Aaron and Theon beginning to empathize with another human being besides themselves feels like a deliberate parallel on George's part to start to show the humanity of these two great joys. Aaron isn't warm or cuddly. You probably wouldn't want to spend any time around him before and after he's a point of view character in A Feast for Crows. Theon is similar in A Clash of Kings, being a cocksure jackass who turns out to be a child murderer and a sore thrust through the stark hopes for winning the War of the Five Kings by the end of A Clash of Kings. So George has to do significant work to redeem these characters in our own eyes. He has to make us see them as human beings. That's where Jane and Falia come in and why they're so important for this, the, their respective arcs. George ensures they're distinct minor characters in their own ways. They're not the same exact character that George is transporting between Aaron and Theon's arc. They're different and unique, but they do operate for a similar narrative purpose. It gets our two point of view characters to think outside of themselves and see human beings as being human. For Theon, it was part of a long-term redemption for his storyline. It's unfolded over the course of, I think, from Reek 3 or Reek 2 all the way to the, his very final chapter in A Dance with Dragons. For Aaron, it's going to be a little bit shorter, unfortunately. Again, stuff we're going to cover in part four. For sure. It's going to be truncated, as we'll get into, and it's truncated for Falia as well. Falia is giving Aaron mercy, a blinkered, limited, ultimately unhelpful form of mercy... 
but it's more than Aaron has ever gotten from anyone else. So he tries to give it back to her in turn, and right on for him. It doesn't work, of course. Euron's too good at what he does. He wears his multi-layered costume too well. He fooled his fellow Ironborn, and he fooled Folly of Flowers, too. But as is often the case in A Song of Ice and Fire, the point is making the attempt. The point is being the change you wish to see. The world, sadly, is not that easy to change. As Aaron notes, Folia is fooled for the exact same reason the captains and the kings were fooled. Euron's generosity. He gives his men the shield islands, and he gives Folia the treasures denied her by her trueborn family. Again, Euron is not bulldozing a good world. He is taking advantage of the... He is taking advantage of the vulnerabilities of a fallen world. What neither Falia nor Euron's Ironborn followers realize is what he means when he calls such rewards rags and rocks. It's the same argument he was driving at when he referred to the Ironborn Driftwood Crown with such contempt at the king's moot. Euron is anti-materialist. He has given up the things of this world that both the Christ and the Buddha teach us is the root of all suffering. He has achieved enlightenment in a sense. But Euron, as he exists on the other side of that process, is the precise inversion of the integrated, complete, serene new man promised by those prophets. He represents the dark side of ego death. As American Buddhist thinker Shinzen Young puts it in regard to the abandonment of self, to which his tradition inspires, it is potentially falling into the pit of the void. Euron is like a version of Bran who just never stopped falling. And Shinzen Young continues, It entails an authentic and irreversible insight into emptiness and no self. What makes it problematic is that the person interprets it as a bad trip. Instead of being empowering and fulfilling the way Buddhist literature claims it will be, it turns into the opposite. In a sense, it's enlightenment's evil twin. And that is Euron Crozai in a nutshell, Enlightenment's evil twin. He climbed the fiery ladder, found nothing at the top, and now rains that silence down on the rest of us. Falia asks why Euron has done all of this for her, but for love of her. And if he loves her, how could he ever betray her? And no doubt Euron's ironborn followers feel the same way. We don't know why exactly Euron had Falia bring Euron food. But if I had to guess, it was to delight in how Falia fails to see Aaron as a mirror image. She fails to see the fate awaiting her. She fails to see the foreshadowing and groundwork. And Euron probably delights in Aaron's failure to convince Falia of that. Euron wants to rub Aaron's face in his own failure to prophesize, to convert properly. You're not their god. I am their god. Hmm. What no one but Aaron seems to understand is why Euron has moved beyond material concerns. And thankfully, we have St. Augustine to help explain what is up with Euron. For I stole that of which I had enough and much better. Nor, I, nor cared I to enjoy what I stole, but joyed in the theft and sin itself. For when gathered, I flung them away. My only feast... Feast, folks, feast. What's the name of the fourth book? Feast of Rose. <laughs> my only feast therein being my own sin, which I was pleased to enjoy. That describes not only Euron's perspective on wealth, not only how he handles the conquest of the Shield Islands, just giving them away to people, but it also describes his relationship to his fellow man. Victorian tells him in The Reaver that his people want grapes, 
But Euron replies that what he wants is woe. <laughs> he raises Falia up just to delight in bringing her down. She hears him call his other sons baseborn, mongrels, subhuman, and thinks he will not apply the same logic to her and the fetus he has planted in her like one of the chestbursters from Alien. Euron swears to Falia that she will be different. He swears by the drowned god. And the unimaginably cruel irony comes crashing down on Aaron in this moment. All at once he understands what his god is to his abuser. A fig leaf to cover up his atrocities and cosmic arrogance. And that's all the old way ever was to begin with. Aaron thinks he could weep for her, but he could only weep tears of blood. Not water, not the salt water he believes connects him to his god. No, no. That ocean is denied him, and he is only the sea of blood. And the only way he can think to save them both is to appeal to Victarion, the hulking icon of the old way, the big brother who can protect Aaron from the crow's eye like Balin did. But just like Balon, Victarion has ultimately fallen short. He has been sent to Slaver's Bay, sent away, assuming he's going to be able to get one over on Euron. He's definitely wrong because of his own limited perspective, his own failure to understand who Euron really is and what he's all about. He, too, is figuratively chained by his own mind. As Makuro puts it to Victarion, the tentacles that grip you and make you dance. Euron has told Falia that Daenerys will be his rock wife, and Falia will be his salt wife. Well, look at that. It's exactly the old way tradition that Aaron was planning to use with Asha and Victarion. But in Euron's hands, it's a lie. Used to string his followers along until the jaws clamp shut around them. That's how easy it is to manipulate Aaron's ideology. We will be kin, Falia says happily. You and me and Daenerys and Euron. All one big happy family. But oh, Aaron knows better. He's known better for years. Euron has no loyalty to family, nor to anyone else. Folly of Flowers is among the Forsaken now. They all are, but only Aaron knows it. That's really amazingly said. And just, it's spectacular that we get to do this podcast about this. This chapter is at least four years ago. And I get to do it with you. It really makes me feel uh, special. So me too, you. buddy. Um, I, I think like there's an aspect that we, we're seeing over and over in this chapter and it's desecration or blasphemy, right? It's Huron mm-hmm. taking these things that are traditionally thought of by the Ironborn as being sacred and unique to their drowned god culture and also things that are s- sort of commonplace in Westeros, having your wife and also having your mistress, so to speak, having be fathering bastards as a lord and also having your trueborn and your noble children and also having your bastard children, the, the rock wife and the salt wife in the Ironborn context. Euron takes all of these aspects and he perverts them. He is somewhat interested in Folly of Flowers, you know, having a child within her and having his child within her. But in the worst possible fucking way, because it is all intended to be part of, well, we'll talk about it in part four, but it is <laughs> likely going to be a part of something larger that Euron has planned and that something is not good at all and will likely result in the death of both Falia and as well as her, her unborn child. Oh, what a happy way to close out this chapter. As well as this chapter right? Well, thankfully, the second half is going to be so much more fun, everybody. We're going to have a great time with that. <laughs> 
But as as, I, as 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 grim as the Forsaken is, it's also I feel like it's it's a bracing experience for me. Like I come yeah. I come out the other side of it feeling like I've really gone through some gone through something special, and I feel the same way having gone through this episode with you, sir. I you know I think that you bring so much to your analysis of this, and so just to spoil everyone and spoil you too because I haven't put this in the document yet. Uh, for part three of the Forsaken, I am going to ask you how it felt to have your major theory semi confirmed <laughs> by the Forsaken. <laughs> And all of the uh, the happiness and giddiness that uh, it, it generated within you, uh, because you were all, you were on top of this stuff before the Forsaken came out, and uh, in a lot of ways, I'm sure that you probably felt that you were on the outside of like the fandom's experience and looking at theories, and then the Forsaken came out, and you're like, "Fuck yeah, man! I'm gonna sit back and, and, and kind of read this thing over and over <laughs> again and see how George just, George wrote this chapter just for me." Yeah, well, I look forward to that. It's going to be a, a great note to start up the chapter on. Again, before we plunge back into the darkness and, and depth and despair. That's going to be great. It absolutely will be. And I think that is a good place to conclude talking about part three for this part two of our four-part analysis of The Forsaken. As always, thank you so much to everyone for listening. And thank you, as always, so much for your support. It means the world to us. We're getting... Extremely, as we record this, we're getting extremely close to a thousand total patrons, which is really cool for us. I know it's just a number, but it makes us feel um, special, awesome, and it's all thanks to you guys. Thank you so much. If you all have the chance, please, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast asoiaf, or shoot us an email at notacast asoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me uh, at PoorQuentin on Twitter or over at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brennan Beefish on Twitter, Brennan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsofpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. So join us next month for the happy part three of our series on The Forsaken in which we tackle the second half of the chapter. It only gets better from here on out. There's an... There's another, like, psychedelic dreamscape, and Euron comes back to tell Aaron about how he killed their whole family, and Folly of Flowers enjoys her unfortunate fate. If anything, it might be more it might, it might be more depressing, but I'm still looking forward to doing it with you, sir. You as well, sir. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your support. And we will see you guys next week for our regular episodes and next month for part three of The Forsaken.